Mr. Jacko's Wet Sloot. Let's start with North Korea. Professor David Tizard, thank you. <laughs> I, I really feel like I'm, I'm getting to know you a bit more over these last 12 months. You were always a figure um, of... Mystery is the wrong word, but your, your reputation precedes you. And uh, over the last 12 months or so, it's been nice getting to know you. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, we spent many years just running into each other here and there, TBS studio, yeah. uh, a lecture on Korean history... You know, that sort of thing. Mm. So it wasn't until, I guess, as you say, the last 12 months that we started to regularly bump into each other. Yeah, little cacaos here and there and mm. things like that and these uh, and tours. Um, let's start with North Korea. Okay. Now, I, I received... I, I Let me frame it this way. I, I gave a, a lecture a couple of days ago at the University of Utah Asia Campus, which is up in Songdo. Yeah. And one of the things that I said to these new students was that, um, amongst many other things, that North Korea is not really that much of a mystery anymore. We kind of know about it. And I think there is this idea that North Korea is this secretive place. We're not quite sure what goes on behind the... It's not an iron curtain, but we might think of it that way. We know mutually people that have lived and worked there. Um, you've obviously done a lot. In, in a general sense, how much... Do you think we know what goes on in North Korea? Is it correct to call it a mystery? Is, are there still things that we don't know? I know I'm jumping right in with this question, but that's where I'd like to start. Yeah, um, it's difficult because North Korea, the state North Korea, yeah. doesn't want to be completely known by outsiders. It, mm. it wants to uh, to be as non-transparent to outsiders as possible so that we never quite know uh, the goals or motivations of Kim Jong-un. And so that's in the interests of the North Korean state. I believe... However, that since 1948, since the formation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, mm. that we have learned enough to understand how the system works. Uh, now, on a, on a micro, that's on a macro basis. On a yeah. micro basis, what goes on day to day? No, we don't have a very good insight into that because, again, North Korea doesn't like to get too much information going out or too much information flowing in. Mm. So most of what we know on a day-to-day -day basis is what the North Korean state tells us or occasionally what sources inside North Korea, who we have to protect by not even identifying their job title or where they live, mm. uh, are able to um, siphon little piece, bits and pieces of information out. So on a day-to-day -day basis, that's a real challenge still. Mm. Uh, but tell you what, with the, uh, uh, the granular quality of satellite photography these days, we're able to get a pretty good picture from the sky um, of what's happening above ground, at least. But on a macro level, yes, I think uh, people who, who study North Korea mm. have a good sense of how it works. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody agrees on how it works, mm. but I think it is knowable. Yeah. When you talk about the day-to-day -day level, of, would, do you think we, uh, perhaps maybe some of Pyongyang, Pyongyang's life is still... A mystery because we've had people, I say we've had people, many people have lived and worked there, they've studied there, they've been to university and things like that, and they would have interacted. So is that not even more sort of becoming known to the outside world, the day-to-day -day realities, or do you think there's still some elements of it that are unknown? Well, I, I'm uh, specifically, let's talk about the last three years, right? Since January 2020, yeah. North Korea has been, uh, has closed its doors to the outside world. No one out, no one in. Right. Um, with very, very few exceptions. I mean, even North Korean diplomats who were due to go home uh, um, after the end of their periods overseas, mm. they haven't. They haven't gone home for, to, 
you know, for the most part. Yeah. And the same for North Korean students and business people. So uh, the last three years, getting to know North Korea on a micro level has been very, very difficult. Because also mm -hmm. uh, the diplomats who were there, the NGO workers who were there, the aid workers, they've all left too. So yeah. what we have is a, a lot of information that was current up until three years ago and then a very little bit of information that's current for the last three years. Mm. Yeah, that's been a real... Game changer is the wrong word, but that's really affected things. It's a hindrance, it? yeah. yeah it's a real absolutely. Hindrance. Um, when you talked about North Korea not wanting information to come in, but also you mentioned that North Korea perhaps doesn't want information going out, whether that's about Chairman Kim Jong Un or the the state itself, is there a motive? And that's their prerogative; they're absolutely right to do that. Is there a reason f for them to do that, or is there the motivation? Are you able to guess at what that might be? Uh yeah, I, I feel that, um, and this is my own opinion here, mm. um, that North Korea, the North Korean state feels that the more that is known about the inner workings of the North Korean government, uh, how it comes to decisions and how it enacts those decisions, that the, uh, too mu if too much of that knowledge gets out, mm. that that could be a threat to its own stability. Right? It, it has... Um, uh, you know, since 1948, been concerned that uh, uh, American and South Korean intelligence um, agencies have tried to get as much information uh, in their hands to bring down the North Korean government. Mm. And so uh, that's, that's, you know, it's one of those cases where they might be paranoid, but there might be a reason to be. Yeah. Uh, so they don't like that sort of information to get out. Yeah. And what they're doing is obviously working. I mean, we haven't had accurate statistics on North Korean uh, economics and trade mm. or, or even... Um, I think even the most recent survey, there was some issues, sorry, uh, census, there was some issues with getting all that data out as well, mm. although North Korea did conduct the census, I believe, from memory. Uh, so there's a, always a lot of difficulty getting out any in, accurate information, even on things as mundane as trade figures and, and, mm. uh, and population sizes of cities. Yeah. So there's a lot of guesswork. And there's a lot of clever people doing those guesses, I think. And we, like you say, with satellites and information, um, they're able to, to connect some dots, but perhaps it is always estimates and, and those kind of things. And I also get the sense that maybe we know in, in our parts of the world, we know too much about our leaders these days with social media and things like that. We know a, a little bit too much how the governments and everything works and it becomes a bit, you, we've seen that the emperor doesn't have any clothes on or we've seen behind the wizard uh, of Oz and it, it's... It's not quite as mysterious, and it makes it a little bit more fallible. We can tear it apart a little yeah, bit more. Yeah. And and that differential, that increasing knowledge about the way that Western leaders work, uh, serves to highlight the, that difference between how little we know about North Korea leaders. Mm, yeah, I like differences in the world. I I, I, I fear homogenization. Actually, if everybody, if everywhere starts becoming the same, and so. You know, I, I will sometimes finish lectures after 15 weeks with my students and, and they'll, they'll write on, I've seen them write on the board, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just different, David Tizard. And that's one of the things they sometimes take away from me, that things are allowed to be different. Um, Generally speaking, though, this is Jacko speaking politically here, yeah. uh, non-transparency is a bad thing for, uh, for governments. So I'd like to see yeah. more transparency in North Korea. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think we both saw a, a quote that I used from Ben Wilson's book, Metropolis, online, which he advocates not only transparency, but uh, free speech and open ideas mm. because because they work. Yeah, and I, I do appreciate you giving your own opinion because I know you do sometimes keep your cards uh, close to your chest. In, in terms of North Korea, I remember when I first started writing op-eds for NK News back before I was even well prepared enough to do so, but I was very thankful for the opportunity to start writing. Um, 
some people back home saw that I was writing for something like NK News and they saw North Korea and they saw the design and they were a bit like, oh my God, simply because they didn't know. They didn't know what the organization was. They possibly thought I was writing for North Korea or something because people that don't live in this part of the world, they don't know what we know. Do you ever... Do you ever get sort of reactions when people know that you work for NK News or, or when you're focused on North Korea, you're publishing um, sort of not publishing, you're tweeting comics, North Korean comics on Twitter and things like that. Do you get any kind of like strange reactions or are we in a more open society now? Um, I, in terms of people who I know already, so mm -hmm. my family and friends, they know that I've, I've had an interest in North Korea a long time, so probably no surprise to them. Right. Uh, my wife is, is Korean. She has zero interest in North Korea 99% <laughs> uh, of the time. And nor, uh, the same goes for her family. So mm -hmm. I think we've never talked about the podcast with, uh, with her, her mother, father, or siblings, and they've shown no interest in wanting to know uh, any more about it either. So uh, it's not that I keep it a secret from them, but mm. uh, it, it just doesn't present itself as a topic of conversation um, so yeah it, it's a niche market and, and mm -hmm. those who know know and those who don't care they won't right mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people will get a, get NK News confused for Daily NK that happens more often than you might think mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you know um, my wife said to somebody recently that uh, her husband makes a podcast for NK News and uh, he said he was a Korean, and he said, "Oh yeah, NK News. They're in some sort of trouble with the government, aren't they?" And I'm like, "No, I think we have good relations with the South Korean government." So I don't know who he was talking about, right. but he had some wires crossed there. Okay, um, do you? Does your work change? Now, this might be getting too political, but I'm going to ask you anyway, and you and you can skirt the topic if you like, or we'll move on. Does the work change according to the domestic situation here in South Korea? Because I remember when I first started writing those op-eds, it was during the, the Park Geun-hye administration. And I was sort of suggesting in my op-eds then that it's, it's good to talk to North Korea, it's good to be open up. This is one of the first things I was writing. And then you fast forward a few years and then it's a very open situation and we see sort of these positive images. I think there was uh, Seoul City Hall had a big banner hanging down with uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un and uh, Moon Jae-in, if memory oh, yeah. serves correctly. Mm, after the, one of the summits. Yeah. yeah uh, so what I'm just trying to get here is, does the domestic political situation affect your work in any way or does the work continue irrespective of the domestic politics? Yeah, for me, it continues completely irrespective of the politics. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, North, th there have been cycles of, uh, of politics in South Korea and in North Korea, but uh, the work of trying to understand North Korea mm. uh, continues apace regardless of what the political climate might be. I once remarked to you that I think you've probably forgotten more about North Korea than some people know. Do you think you might be able to perhaps relay a couple of stories or tidbits or information that you think is interesting about North Korea? It doesn't have to be sort of high level politics. It could just be day to day information. It could be anything. But is there anything that you've that you've learned about North Korea or you find is interesting, you find is perhaps humorous or eye opening to relay about the subject? Uh, I, I find North Korea to be an endless source of, uh, of fascination, again, partly because it, it do, doesn't it seeks to not be known fully by mm. the outside world. And mm. I've always, you know, when I was at uh, in high school, I did a, uh, a project on, on Freemasonry because okay. they have secrets. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I've always been uh, tantalized by things that don't want to be known by outsiders. Mm. Uh, and so North Korea is a whole country like that. Uh, and so everything about it 
you know, I find interesting. I mean, uh, when I went there in 2010, I stayed at the Yangagto Hotel. That's a hotel where they put a lot of foreign tourists. Mm. Uh, and there's a floor on that hotel uh, which, for which there's no button in the lift. And if you go there, it's full of um, propaganda uh, and apparently listening devices. Now, um, shame on me. Mm. I was too scared to go to the fifth floor lest I get in trouble. But I know people who did, and I've seen photos and videos of it. Right. So, uh, you know, I know, wow, that's really interesting that they, you know, they even in the midst of this hotel, which is devoted to the tourism industry, they get mm. lots of, at that time, they had lots of Americans there each year. And meanwhile, there was a, a poster on the fifth floor of that same hotel saying, we will get revenge on the American imperialist jackal bastards 100,000 times. I think, well, that. It's an incongruity that I find so interesting. Mm, you know? mm, mm. Uh, and so they took that same trip, 2010, they took us to uh, the Kim Il-sung, books, uh, Kim Il-sung Square Foreign Bookstore. Okay. Everyone gets, every tourist group gets taken there at some point. Yeah. And they show a lot of books that are very, shall we say, pretty humdrum. You get a lot of photo books, mm. cooking books, and then books of works by the leader translated into English. And these are not the kind of things that I wanted to read. So. No. I asked the uh, lady behind the counter uh, in my best Korean, I said, uh, can you show me some uh, comic books that show me the true nature of the American, the true evil nature of the American Ooh. imperialist bastards? And, <laughs> and she laughed as you did, and she went back behind the curtain, <laughs> like the Wizard of Oz, and came back with three books and said, here, you need these. Uh, and so uh, that was how I became fascinated by North Korean comic books. They do make between 20 to 50 volumes a year. Some of them are a aimed at children, mm. um, talking bunnies and, and weasels and hedgehogs and squirrels and things. Yeah. And then some of them are definitely much more uh, older teenagers and young adults, you know, uh, set in the Korean War, um, quite realistic storylines, uh, even using names that may actually have referred to real people at some stage. So it, it, there's quite a, uh, a range there. All mm. of it, of course, has gone through the North Korean um, state censorship program. So mm. it's all been approved. Uh, and it, it's, it, I find it interesting that he, here is North Korea using entertainment as a way to uh, teach the next generation the mm. ideological beliefs that it has. You know, so foreigners are bad, mm. um, and and in that ranking, you know, you got generally foreigners are not to be trusted, um, and that includes South Koreans because they're in league with the Americans. Mm -hmm. Then the Americans who are big nosed bastards, they're really bad. And then even worse than the Americans are the Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're shown as being the worst. Um, you know, you'll often find a Japanese character with a little Hitler mustache and bald. Uh, bald means bad in most North Korean comic books. They're a very visual representation of evil characters. You can tell pretty much on the first or second page, mm -hmm. ah, he's a baddie and he's a goodie, even if they're Korean. How so? The Japanese are generally bald and moustache, and I've seen that actually on Korean television in dramas, the older dramas where yeah. they do this hagooks or something and the crooked teeth, and they yeah, they look visually. Yeah, Tojo, I think. Mm, that would make sense. The Americans with the big noses, you said. Is there like a visual depiction or a characteristic of the South Koreans? How you know that they are scowling, wrinkled, uh, balding, uh, a moustache. Um, maybe a wart uh, or, or some sort of facial deformity, just anything that no. makes them look unaesthetically pleasing. Start, start shaving, I think. Would, are you surprised that the lady said you need these when you asked for the, the evil? Now, she may not have said you need these in that way, but she certainly she still these, are, them. these are for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was very grateful. Is it surprising to you that she offered them to you? Because 
you know, we sort of say, well, these are the official things, but she went and and found these and and, and ah. you purchased them, yeah, and you yeah. bought them back. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it is a uh, it's a good question um, because not all North Korean comic books are available for foreigners. Okay, right. There there are some. Uh, there was one series back in the mid 2000s that was very very popular. Ten volumes went through multiple reprints, and was even reported on in the uh, ethnic Korean newspaper in Japan, you know, by the Zainichis. Mm. Uh, and uh, and that book couldn't get a, a hold of it anywhere, wow. um, even you know through through various channels. It was impossible to get a hold of. And I think it's just that they don't want certain books to fall into foreign. I'm not sure why that is. Is it a particular storyline? Is it a level of violence? I don't know. Mm. But I do know that um, upon leaving North Korea by train, mm. uh, I took a train from Pyongyang to Dandong via Shiniju. And at Shiniju, the train stops for three or four hours and a, a military man gets on and checks everything that you're leaving with. Right? So he went through my luggage and he mm. found those three comic books that the lady sold me at the bookshop. And he put them aside and said, don't put these back in your suitcase just yet. And then maybe half an hour later, uh, another man arrived on the platform of the station Mm. in a black Lexus SUV, not wearing a military uniform, but just white shirt sleeves. It was a very hot August day. Mm. Uh, And he went through the the carriages of the train with the military man who had been through first. Mm. And the military man showed him certain items that he needed to get a double clearance on. And those three comics were in that that had to have a double clearance because he asked me where to buy them. Did I have a receipt? Who gives receipts in North Korea? So no. Uh, But anyway, uh, the second man said, yeah, these are okay. And that's how I was able to leave North Korea with them. But uh, it did uh, bring home to me that that some things are not meant for outside. Again, it's it's that desire to, you know, Brian Myers uh, divides North Korean uh, state output Mm. into an inner track and an outer track. Uh, and then there's a track that's specifically export track. For, uh, export track. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Were you scared? You oh, haven't done anything wrong, but I'm, I'm just trying to, because I haven't been to North Korea. Yeah. Um, I've always sort of, I've had the opportunities, but I, I kind of don't trust myself a little bit. I try to be a good boy, but. Um, yep. Were yeah. you scared at that moment, yeah. or can you give us an idea of what that felt like? Yeah, I've I've been to Pyongyang uh, three times now, and each time there are moments where I thought this could go wrong mm. uh, and I've got to watch my mouth mm. Um, mm. and not make jokes about certain people or yeah. you know certain comments and so uh, I'm lucky that I've always been able to get out but mm-hmm. the, the last time I was in there there were just a few too many questions asked of me by the outgoing customs inspector at the airport um, I was the last person to get through. Everybody else was way on ahead of me. It was mm. no more time for duty-free shopping, such as it exists uh, at Pyongyang Airport. Mm. Uh, it was time to board the plane. And I was getting a little bit antsy that they, they had a lot of questions. And then they wanted to go through uh, my phone and um, um, the, uh, the micro SD card that I had with me. Luckily, I'd not recorded anything and I'd not photographed anything that I shouldn't have. I did have, by accident, on my phone, I'd forgotten to delete it, um, some footage that I had taped off of South Korean television of the first uh, Kim Moon summit okay. at Panmunjom. And there was some clips in there, which the gentleman found, the, the fellow in the military uniform who probably works for customs as well as the state security. He found those. And at that moment, I got very nervous. I thought, oh, I'm not supposed to have anything from South Korean media. What's he going to do? Uh, and he just looked through it quickly and handed me the phone back and said, off you go. So... I always get nervous, and it's one of those situations where as the plane takes off from Pyongyang and heads for the People's Republic of China, Mm. I start to feel like, oh, I'm going to the land of the free. Now, 
we know that's not the case, but it's all relatively speaking, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Will you, obviously COVID at the moment, will you go back? Will there be further trips, do you think? And, and well, I don't know. I don't know if I can go through China again. Uh, I was quite outspoken when a friend of mine was uh, arrested and held in a Chinese jail for th nearly three years. So uh, also going through China, you know, uh, they held my passport a little bit too long, had too many questions, called over another man and said, what do you think of this? Mm. Which you never want to be in a situation at an airport, at passport control, where your man calls over another man, or woman for that matter, yeah. where, where one passport officer calls over another one and says, get a load of this. So yeah. Was I on a list? Was I flagged? I don't know. So I'm a bit nervous about going through China again for the meantime. Uh, and now that there's a war on in Ukraine, I'm also nervous about going through Russia. So I'm not sure if I'll ever go back to North Korea in my lifetime. Mm. If I do, I'd like to go back over land, of course. Go with President Noam Yukhanani's. They went When he went up there, I believe he went through cars, didn't he? Um, or maybe he came back that way. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, uh, Moon Jae-in went up uh, to Panmunjom and, and then stepped over to North Korea uh, by land too. That's great. I just want to make this one point before I forget, which when you were talking about the comics and the uh, the portrayals of Americans and things like that, my mind my mind was immediately racing towards Captain Captain America and Wonder Woman and Nazis and things like that. And it's it's not too dissimilar to what has happened in other parts of the world. I know now they're all sort of uh, uh, superheroes and Avengers in mm. space, but at the time they were still very political. I believe I'm not a big comic person, right. but they would have been, I think. Yeah, no, that's true. And and uh, they had anti-Nazi uh, comics and things. Uh, one big difference is that North Korea doesn't have any superheroes, right? They're, uh, uh, they, they're, the, the Koreans are sometimes, particularly those that set during the Korean War, uh, depicted as mm. being uh, almost superhumanly strong mm. uh, and muscular and tall given that time. You know, I mean, they weren't mm. getting a lot of nutrients even before 1950. Uh, but there are no superheroes per se. Although there are, shall we say, there are some comic books that are set about Kim Jong-il and Kim, Kim Il-sung uh, in which elements of what you might call magical realism appear. So, mm. uh, uh, you know, Kim Jong-il, for example, magically appearing on Mount Hallasan down in Jeju-do, uh, riding astride a giant tiger. Now, because the comic book art form is not considered respectful enough to actually depict the face of or the visage of uh, mm. of any of the the Pectusan bloodline. Mm. You don't see those pictures in there, but you see people reacting to, oh my goodness, I've just seen Kim Jong-il astride a giant tiger on Mount Halasan. My blindness is cured. It's almost biblical, uh, but there's certainly you, you elements you could call it uh, mm. magical realism. That's fantastic. So they're reacting to this thing that you can't see, but yep. it's being described to you. Yeah, you can sort of see like a, like a brilliance. Mm. Um, you know, a bit like I think uh, I have a, a memory back to watching the Ten Commandments with Moses at the, talking to the burning mm. bush and talking to God. You don't see God. You just see kind of a brilliance. Yeah. And then Moses reacting. Isn't the story of Kim Jong-il's uh, birth on Baekdu-san with stars going across? The, that's a, that always struck me as a little bit biblical. That's the official note. He wasn't, I believe he was born in Russia, Vladivostok or... Uh, I, I think Khabarovsk. Uh, but anyway, you're right. The, the, story, the official story in North Korea that he was born atop uh, in a log cabin uh, atop Mount Pektu in a secret partisan camp in the 1940s. But that I've never seen actually uh, depicted in a comic book. Okay. Yeah. Are these, when I sometimes see you tweet images from these, they're rough. No, I should say that I'm retweeting somebody else's images. Uh, okay, yeah. Thank not, you for clarifying. Not my account. Thank you for clarifying. They're, they're rough and black and white, aren't they? It, is there is are these old ones are are the modern ones in color or are they generally in black and white or that's just 
the the retweets that you're doing. You know, some of them still come out in black and white, even uh, in the last ten years, and yeah. then. Uh, uh, they have different formats. There are some that are about sort of novel size, and they tend to be largely black and white. And then there are some that are almost A4 in size, uh, and they are full color and printed on quite glossy paper, surprisingly, uh, for North Korean comics. Okay. And, and they look like they may be based on a Disney um, uh, film. You know, they certainly have some artwork that looks like it was modeled after, uh, after Disney works. Mm. You know, when I've often seen you retweet these, I've never, I, I, I must confess, I've never really been that interested in them. But now hearing you talk about them, I'm like, I've, I've, I'm fascinated. I want to know more. Do they have webtoons? Do they have webtoons no, on their internet? But, but now mm. that there are tablets uh, in North mm. Korea, the North Korean made tablets, Android uh, copies with their own operating software, um, they have put uh, digitized versions of some comic books, in it, like a PDF file, on mm. the tablets. So not webtoons per se in, in that particular scroll-down format that South Korean webtoons mm. are made in, but simply digitized versions of comics that you can read and, and you can kind of flip it like a book. Are there any... Oh, that's another thing. Yeah. Uh, when I was there, uh, it was not allowed to buy any of those tablets. Uh, foreigners couldn't buy them. You couldn't buy the tablets? Yeah. Okay. And they, they have these... Uh, they take you to um, uh, a department store in Pyongyang. It's another mm. stop on the tourist trail. And you can buy almost anything in that department store that you like, you know. Um, there's a, and there's a lot of stuff there. You know, it's a pretty well-stocked department store. Mm. They even have what looks like a section of IKEA furniture. Now, I'm not suggesting that IKEA have um, set up a, you know, a, a subsidiary in, in Pyongyang, but I think that somebody's importing it piecemeal and then reselling it at this department store. And it actually has the label IKEA and the product names, etc. Anyway, but they they have um, these blank hardback red books that they sell, mm. which are what the North Koreans use for their Senghwal Chonghwa, which is their um, sort of life review. Mm. Uh, and every week they have to write down where they have fallen short of the ten principles of um, establishing a monolithic monolithic leadership ideology. It's hard to get out in one go. Uh, and we're not allowed to buy those books. They're blank books. Ooh. There's nothing in them. Ooh. I've taken them to the uh, the cash register mm. and tried to buy one. And sorry, those are not. And in fact, there's even a little thing on the shelf that says these are not for foreigners. So uh, it's a blank book. You tell me why. I don't know. But it's it's amazing that they would have it there so you can see it. Mm. Well, because uh, the North Koreans are buying it there. Yeah, but it's it's not hidden. You can see it. Yep. And it's only for you, and it it makes you want to buy it even more, doesn't it? Now that that uh, those ten principles that I referred to, yes. which you can find online in Korean and in an English translation on um, Wikipedia. And just before you go, and this also has a religious aspect to it, doesn't Very it? The much Ten so. Commandments and the confession. Yeah. yeah sorry. So uh, I tried when I was there in in 2019 to purchase a copy of this uh, little booklet that we I've seen a mm. copy of. Uh, in one of the art studios that take you to in Munster, Pyongyang, I've seen a copy of this book, The Ten Principles of Establishing a Monolithic Leadership Ideology. And I said, can I buy this? And they said, no, it's not available for foreigners. Now, that is the most important document to every North Korean on a daily basis. Forget the... Um, uh, the, the Constitution, mm -hmm. forget the w works of Kim Il-sung, although those are important too. Mm. But that little booklet mm. is very, very important because that is, as you say, it has a, a religious element. I mean, they were apparently put together in the late 1960s by, 
either a cousin or an uncle of Kim Il-sung who had been a Methodist minister at some stage. So it's kind of based on or inspired by the Ten Commandments, mm. uh, and there are ten of them. Mm. Uh, and, it, you know, there's a lot of them about uh, having respect for uh, the leader and, and, uh, and for the system. And every North Korean measures themselves up against this. And as you say, that they criticize the self-criticism sessions are based on those ten principles, and the criticism of others are also based on those ten principles. So it is super important, and yet we're not allowed to see it. Uh, you don't see um, slogans around the city of Pyongyang that are taken from that book. You see other mm. slogans, mm. but not that. So here it is. I mean, that's as clear as day evidence that uh, North Korea, the North Korean government, doesn't want itself to be truly known. Mm. And that's perhaps that BR Meyer's import, uh, the inner track, the mm. outer track, and what's going on there. So um, I asked my guide at the uh, time, you know, yeah. uh, why can't I have this? Because mm. you know, me, me, with my obsession with secrets, I immediately uh, want to get a copy of this. And he said, well, uh, I'll, let me give you an answer tomorrow. And he came back the next day and he mm. said, uh, if you were uh, Korean, you know, a member of the Minjok, mm. uh, and if you uh, believed as we do and, and loved and, and revered the leader as we did, uh, then you'd be, you know, you could have a copy of this. Uh, but since you fall short of those two uh, conditions, you can't get it. I wonder if there would be some people in this part of the world that could get it, then, if they fulfilled those two conditions, if that's all it took. Are, are the ten... Um, sorry, can you give me the name of the book one more time? Yes, I, I think if you uh, go to Wikipedia and do a search for yeah. the ten, ten grand principles, ten great principles for the establishment of a monolithic leadership ideology... There, there was a name change at some stage. I mm. may have the old name mixed up with the mm. new one. Nevertheless, if you Google that, it'll mm. come up um, in English, and then you can work your way backwards through Wikipedia to get to the Korean text of that. So the text is out there. I mean, it's not, right. you know, it's a bit like that time that I went to uh, uh, 2017, uh, a, a large restaurant in Pyongyang after the marathon, mm. and there's a photograph, a very large mounted or framed photograph on the wall of Kim Jong-il, the late Kim Jong-il, mm. in an undershirt, it looks like, or certainly a white T-shirt, uh, wearing a chef's hat, and he's cooking. Okay. And it's an incongruous photograph. I've never mm. seen a photograph like it. Uh, so it. It kind of looks a little bit... Well, let's just say it doesn't look like completely in keeping with the dignity and the poise that Kim Jong-il liked to portray all mm -hmm. the time. No, so I, I thought, you. I'll get a photograph of that. But no, there was a young woman standing right by that mounted photograph whose job it was to make sure that nobody got a photograph of it. Oh, wow. And I said to her, really, is that that's what you do? She said, yes. And I said, I'm sure if I go out on the Internet and look for Kim Jong-il cooking, I'll find the photograph. And she said, no, you won't. And, of course, I went out and I looked mm. for Kim Jong-il cooking. You could find that photograph, no trouble. So anything that the North Korean government doesn't want out there somehow will get out there eventually. Mm. It just makes it difficult. Yeah. Going back to these 10 um, for the monolithic leadership, so they're about more glorifying the regime than one's own day-to-day -day personal habits or something because you say they have to write down the diary or in the red book. So yeah. those 10, uh, is it just based more on like, you know, watch what you say and watch what you do? Or? No, that's that's far too mundane. It, it's okay. actually – now, I've not memorized them like mm -hmm. North Koreans do. Uh, they would memorize them all. Uh, but to me, they seem – kind of vague and lofty and hard to work out how to apply them to your life. Mm. So, um, but but they find a way, you know. So let's just, I don't know, let's, let's say that one of the principles could be, um, you know, uh, always follow through the uh, instructions of the party 
with great sincerity. Let's just assume that that's one of them. Mm. And then you might say, well, you know, last week I was a bit lazy at work. I didn't um, didn't pick up some trash that I saw, and I, I wasn't following through on the principles of the party with great sincerity. So that's one strike against me. You know, yeah. so you, you you find something you've done wrong or that somebody else has done wrong, and then apply that back to the principle. Quiet quitting is not a thing in Pyongyang, or if it is, it's written down. And, yes, and, well, and, someone will notice you and we'll, <laughs> we'll write you up for it the next yeah, time. Yeah. yeah. It must it must instill a, a lot of discipline. I know if I had to write down at the end of each week all the things that I did wrong or, or didn't do as well as I should have done, let's say, not necessarily doing things wrong, but where I could have done better, right. it would be a very, you know, some people might even see that as self-help. Yep. You know, is a way yep. of bettering yourself and really maximizing what potential you have. I, th- I think, though, because the motivation here is extrinsic, not intrinsic, so it's not you saying, I, David Tether, I want to become better, so I'm going to do yeah. this, but yeah. rather it's a formality that everyone has to go through every week because the party says so. Mm. I suspect that at a certain point, and I've heard this from some North Koreans, at a certain point it becomes a pro forma, that you just do it because, well, you know, we have to do it every week and we have to sit there, and if you don't have something to say about yourself, then the meeting will never end. And mm. so you may as well write down some things, and maybe you and your best buddy can work out a way that, you know, I'll criticize you about that thing that you did and you criticize that thing that I did, but we won't mention the really sensitive stuff and, you know, just kind of work out a deal that way. And, and so it becomes performance rather than actual, and it's, uh, yeah, for a different purpose than bettering yourself. Yeah. You just mentioned um, having spoken to some North Korean people. Now, during your time in Pyongyang, you will have spoken to North Korean people and then outside as well with people that have left the country or, or, or doing things like that. Do you have any observation on the people? I know this is a very broad question, but I'm fascinated by people. And for the most part, I love the people of South Korea. Yeah. You know, when, sometimes when people ask me, David, why are you here? One of the reasons is I enjoy the people here. And I'm not quite sure what I mean by that mm-hmm. when I say it, but I do like interacting with people and uh, I find the people here warm and, 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 and friendly. Any any observations on the people of North Korea? Uh, when they're in... Okay, I mean, let's... Let's start with the foundational principle that people are people everywhere. Yeah. But um, there's things that, you know, there's, there's culture and there are social rules, etc., that act as constraints or as... Uh, uh, motivating factors. Mm. So people who are from North Korea, while they're in North Korea, they're not they're not going to completely speak their mind and tell you the full truth and everything because you know they, especially when there's another North Korean present. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, mm-hmm. As a foreigner, uh, when you're around North Koreans, they're supposed to report on topics of conversation and write that up every evening. So every evening after we would have our dinner, the guides would retire to a separate room and they would write their reports. And there's two guides and so they also write what they see about the other guy doing Mm. and and vice versa. So there's a way of sort of triangulating and and verifying uh, and keeping everything in triplicate, you know. So uh, it's it's very clever of the the state to do that. Um, So... And coming back to my, my theme, I didn't want to parrot about this too long, but uh, North Korea not wanting to, itself to be known, mm. um, sometimes the guides in North Korea have to be less than completely honest with their tourists. They may want to tell the truth, but there are some constrictions on mm. them. Uh, and an example of that is um, when in 2010, this was the year of uh, the sinking of the Chonan. And I went there in August. That was before the shelling of Yonpyeongdo Island. Mm, mm. Uh, and we were taken to the circus in Pyongyang. And there was um, most of the circus was um, 
feats of strength and agility, you know, uh, juggling and high wire act and acrobats. This is an actual circus. Yeah. I, I, I've not seen pictures of the circus in Pyongyang. Ah, is this it was like an animal free tent? circus. Oh, is it an animal free? No, it's a, it's a, there's a building that's there, like there is a permanent building for the circus. And we saw an animal free circus, which is great. So, you know, um, no animals were suffering for that. It was all people. Uh, and in the midst of this circus show, yeah. there was a, uh, a comedy skit. Mm. Um, three or four or five men, let's say five men, uh, four of them come out wearing uh, rumpled South Korean-looking uniforms mm. and one of the uh, um, enlisted uniforms, so the lower ranks, and one man comes from the other side of the, of the ring wearing a, uh, an officer's uniform, and he's um, clearly either just uh, stumbled down drunk or just foolish. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's this back-and-forth dialogue between the officer and the four enlisted men. Uh, and the South Korean officer is trying to convince the four enlisted men that um, the Chonan had been sunk by North Korea uh, and that, uh, you know, those North Koreans will pay or something along those lines. Uh, and the four enlisted men in the South mm -hmm. Korean uniforms were making fun of their officer, saying, now we know it's all, uh, it's a trick, it's a... Um, uh, a scheme thought up by President Im Yong Bak to shore up his sagging popularity figures. Oh wow! Yeah, and and, and this is the thing. It was about forty-six servicemen, 36, 40, lost their lives in the sinking yeah, of the exactly. uh, Chonan. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's it's awful, right? It, it's uh, yes. it, it's not it's not comedy for me, but no. uh, the people there in in North in Pyongyang, they were laughing, and, and they were also you know using uh, some bad words. Uh, to describe Im Yong Bak, and you know, I think uh, Seki got in there as well somewhere, for example. So mm. um, now I'm uh, not bad at, at understanding spoken Korean, but I'm not 100%. It's not the first language. And in North Korea, they speak uh, in an intonation that I'm not very familiar with. So I was getting some other words, mm -hmm. and I was getting the context, yeah. but I wasn't getting everything. Right. And so afterwards, I, I approached my, uh, uh, there were two guys, one man and one woman. I was approached the woman guide, and I said, could you help me to understand what they said there during that comedy sketch at the circus? And she said to me. Did you ask that in Korean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, no, you know what? I might have asked it in English. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and she said to me, yeah, it was in English, yeah. She said to me, there were no words, Jacko. It was silent comedy. She said, beaming. And I laughed like that, and I repeated the question twice, and she gave me the same answer th twice. So three times I had told me that I heard nothing. Oh, wow. Silent comedy. It's gaslighting. I was gaslighted. <laughs> uh, and so then later on, separately, when the woman guide wasn't there, yeah. I talked to the male guide, and I said, yeah. what, what did they say during that circus? And he told me exactly what I've just told you, exactly what it was, right? Uh, mm. And he didn't see – now, he was new to the game, and he didn't see that as being his career for a long time. He wanted to get into trade and wanted to go to Shanghai for the World Expo or something like that. So he wasn't there for life, but this woman had been there um, for some years, and I think she was hoping to remain in the tourism industry for quite a bit longer. So perhaps her attitudes were a bit different. He was less protective of yeah. information. But, yeah, uh, that's just an example. That, oh, and similarly, at the same time, uh, I would ask everybody who I met in North Korea – this is August 2010. Yeah. Uh, middle of August. Kim Jong-un didn't have his coming out parade, his big debut, mm -hmm. until October 10 of that same year. Okay. So I was there yeah. just a bit, two months shy of that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, we know from a photograph taken by a tourist to a North Korean factory sometime before my trip that Kim Jong-un's name was already known amongst the North Korean populace. He was already being praised in song and poem. Mm -hmm. And so I asked everyone I met, what's the name of Kim Jong-il's son what's you know what's the name of his heir yeah. and they all said to me we don't know if you know why don't you tell us okay everyone i came in contact yeah. with from the barman to the the guides mm. 
Except for there was one uh, young woman who worked in the uh, the hotel post office, mm. uh, and I was able to sort of ask a leading question like, "So the uh, the son of Kim Jong is it's Kim Jong," uh, and she completed the un part. So then I knew, aha, they do all know. Mm. But again, that back to Brian Myers's division between inner track and outer track, mm-hmm. that was still inner track. They weren't allowed to tell foreigners yet. Yeah. Two months later, they had the big coming out parade, and then Kim Jong Un's name was on everyone's lips. But uh, at that time, it was still uh, too early to uh, to talk publicly. Imagine the logistics of trying to get the population of North Korea is about twenty five million. Is it trying to get? Pyongyang will be much smaller. Everybody to follow the same script or to do that, it must be incredible. It's it's a remarkable feat. You 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 almost have to applaud the audacity mm-hmm. or or the the attempt to believe that that could be done. And of course, there will always be bits that maybe slip through the yep. cracks, like you say. But nevertheless, it's an undertaking that you would think is not humanly possible yeah and yet for the most part perhaps it is possible and it does work i think that if you live if you grow up in north korea you probably learn at a young age that if something's been in the the newspaper Mm. then it's okay you can talk about it with everybody Mm. and if something is you know circulated on a piece of paper at a workplace or you know um, at a um on a wall poster, maybe you don't. You know, you just find ways of distinguishing information. Mm, mm, Uh, mm. And I don't want to suggest, uh, as some have, that all 22 or 25 million North Korean people have been trained on how to deal with foreigners. No, I mean, Mm -hmm. for the most part, Mm -hmm. everyone who works in the tourism industry, yes, they have been trained. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, there's not that many of them. Uh, Now, clearly, the the woman uh, at the post office in the hotel, she missed that day of training because, perhaps because, you know, she's only supposed to be uh, selling stamps and um, um, signing up people to write an email. Mm-hmm. So maybe th- that was skipped for her. Yeah. Right. Uh, but who, who knows? But anyway, I, I think generally people know to be careful about information, especially to foreigners, because again, coming back to the comic books, it, it's been taught from a, from very young on that mm-hmm. there are spies out there. They're trying to get information. Loose links, loose lips sink ships. Mm. And so be careful with information that hasn't been put in the uh, the Rolling Shinmun. Yeah. And how do they react when you speak to them in Korean? Because I say this with the greatest respect. You're a very distinctive looking gentleman. Yeah. Whether in stature, I know you've heard that a million times, but um, is there any reaction when you speak to them in Korean or do you generally try to use English and keep your Korean skills back? Because then you can try to understand what's yeah, going on. It, it's funny. I've gone through different uh, phases. I've been, As I said, I've been to North Korea three times now, or to Pyongyang three times. And yeah. uh, uh there are times when I think it's uh, uh, good not to, to show a Korean skill, and then there are times mm. when it's good. Back in the mid-2000s, North Korea went through um, a phase where it didn't want to accept aid workers from outside who spoke Korean. Mm. Yeah, I've, yeah. Um, and I think that, again, back to that I don't want to be completely known, right? Uh, now, when I went there in 2019, uh, the last time I was there, I was talking Korean to anybody who would listen, and they would always ask me, where did you learn Korean? And I would say, uh, which is like, you know, from the village down there, which mm. they mm. find hilariously mm. funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, it funny I didn't well. think it up. Somebody told me that joke, said, yeah. you should use this. Yeah. And I said, you know, I learned it down there, uh, and they yeah. laughed. Yeah, that's good. It's, it, it's nice to hear stories of them laughing and yeah. and, and, and swearing and doing those things. It, it, it's just a beautiful exactly. thing. Exactly. North Korean people are people too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love it. Um, I don't know if I can get your comment on this, but you talked about succession and you talked about um, 
uh, Chairman Kim Jong Un's coming out party yeah. in October two thousand and October two thousand ten around then. Yeah, two thousand ten. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's the news at the moment is filled with another possible one. Right. Um, I must confess that the name of Chairman Kim Jong Un's daughter has escaped me at the moment. It may or may not be Kim Joo-ae, because once again, okay. yes, her name has you. not yet appeared in North Korean state media. No. So let's say it might be Kim Joo-ae, but yeah. can't be one hundred percent sure. Uh, thank you for that. Um, it really seems to me. I, I, I spoke to one journalist who, who wrote this book, "The Princesses of Pyongyang mm. and um, North Korean Women in Power." There is coming out of North because there was this idea of North Korea as a gerontocracy mm-hmm. um, and very lots of old men with notebooks and, and and that was an image that was there in the last sort of five five years or so ten years there's been a lot of women there's been an image and I'm not sure if this is a a conscious effort to soften the images or it's just a reflection there's no propaganda involved it's just maybe Chairman Kim Jong-un feels more comfortable around women or, or that's how we grew up because um do you have any comment on that, the, the increasing presence of women in North Korea? Uh, or is it just a thing? There's nothing really to be said about it because, you know, they're all people. I mean, it is true that uh, that Kim Jong-il didn't really go out with his wife to, to public ceremonies um, and didn't take his kids along to things. And so it's a real break from tradition to have Kim Jong-un out there with his wife uh, mm. With his sister, with um, a woman he may have dated in the past, but certainly is friends with, uh, and his daughter. So yeah. that's a, a, a definite break from tradition. Is it a sign that he wants to portray um, sort of a happy family uh, vision to uh, to North Koreans, or is it something more? Certainly, a lot of speculation now. Does this mean that the daughter is the successor? Of course, it, it's too early to know anything for sure. Yeah. Um, it, if there are other children, it's interesting that he hasn't chosen to bring any of the other children out. It's just that one daughter who may or may not be known as Kim Joo-hae. Mm. Uh, so, but as with, with uh, Kremlin, Kremlinology, which was something that the people who watched the Soviet Union used to engage in, mm. uh, Pyongyangology, uh, it's a, a dangerous game because when you're proved wrong, you look silly. Uh, and so I just say, well, that's interesting. And let's keep watching and see if she does end up being the successor. Yeah. But yeah. for now, we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we won't know for a very long time, it would yeah. seem. Yeah, and there's, so. there's certainly a debate amongst North Korean watchers. Can North Korea be run by a woman? And there are strong arguments on both sides. Yeah. And I don't really have a dog in that fight uh, or a horse in that race. So I'll just keep watching and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's not so much the succession. It's more the, the growing presence of visible women in the North Korea, which is – and that it, it's not just political, but I also extend that to the vlogs and the things that are coming out. And that to me seems very interesting. Like it's uh, – you know, they're showing a different side of the country, which was perhaps not always there. Yeah. Sh- shall we talk about your podcast? Yeah. I-, I-, I really love all these North Korean stories. By sure. The way. I- I'm-, I'm glad we-, we covered. If any more do come to you while we talk about the podcast, please uh, feel free to jump them in because it feels like, um, yeah, it almost felt like I was there in Pyongyang with you at times, ah. Jacko, and I like that. You're, you're a good storyteller. Now, the, the NK News podcast. Right. It comes uh, out every Tuesday. And as of this month, I've been doing it for five years. Five years. So everybody should go and listen to the NK News podcast. Um, I'd be grateful. Yeah, yeah that's uh, go and listen to it. There's <laughs> there's there's a couple of good episodes on there. Um, no. Yes. It's, it, 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 tell us about it. Give us the NK News podcast. Five years. 
Yeah, uh, so every week I uh, interview... See, I don't consider myself by any means an expert on North Korea, but I'm somebody who's interested in it, and I like to talk to the experts. So every yeah. week I try to talk to another expert um, and interview them about their area of expertise of uh, or... Uh, experience with North Korea. So sometimes I've talked to people who've come out of North Korea, what we call mm -hmm. North Korean defectors or refugees. Um, sometimes I've talked to people from the American government or the South Korean government who have worked with North Korea. Um, so mm -hmm. every episode is different. Some, some guests come back multiple times. You've been on twice, of course. Uh, some people have only been on once. So, but I, 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 when I started this five years ago, I had no idea um, didn't really plan it out that there would be so many potential different people to talk to about North Korea, so many different angles to look at it from. I liken it to that wonderful old story. Is it from from uh, Indian antiquity about the four blind men trying to uh, work out an elephant mm -hmm, in a room, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. one guy's got the tail, and one's got the trunk, and one's got a leg, and one's got the flank. Um, and with North Korea, imagine that, but. Instead of it being just four parts to an elephant, it's like a diamond and there are a million facets and everyone's touching or looking at a different side of it from mm. a different angle. And to really build up as full a picture of North Korea as we can, um, that's why I try to talk to as many people as we can. And now uh, NK News is a, uh, is a, a commercial news website. Uh, it operates on a subscription basis mm -hmm. and people uh, pay money to subscribe to it, just like they do, say, I don't know, The Economist or The New York Times. And those subscriptions pay for the journalism and for the podcast. So without those subscriptions, I'd be nowhere. I wouldn't be able yeah. to make the podcast. Uh, the podcast is free. Just the the people. Thank yeah. you. That's right. You don't have to subscribe to NK News to listen no. to the podcast, no. uh, but obviously, subscribing to NK News <laughs> yes, helps the podcast to be made. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, uh, and each episode is about forty-five to uh, forty-five minutes to an hour long. Mm. Sometimes I go a bit over. Uh, recently, I talked to uh, Siegfried Hecker, who is the only foreigner I know who's been to. Uh, Yongbyon multiple times to look at North Korea's nuclear facilities. He's written mm -hmm. a book about that that you're now reading. Hinge Points. It hasn't arrived yet. I'm, re I'm uh, reading a different one at the moment, but I'll get to Hinge Points. Reading soon. Yes. Uh, and, and since he, he knows so much, yeah. uh, I, I went for an hour and a half with him. Also, Steve Began, who was under President Trump, he was the point man on North Korea. He went multiple times, met with Kim Jong-un, mm. uh, Kim Hyung-chol, all these important, uh, and of course, a chair... Chae Son-hee, the mm -hmm. most important woman in North Korean uh, foreign affairs. Uh, talked to them multiple times, and I talked to him for, I think it was about two and a half hours. It was probably the longest single episode. Double episode. Was that one episode, the one with was one episode. It was at least oh, okay. one episode. Mm. Uh, because I, Steve wasn't going to, unlike a lot of other people who worked for President Trump, he wasn't about to write a book, a tell-all memoir. <laughs> and he said, Jacko, I'm going to download everything that I've got right now, and that's it. And so uh, we recorded two and a half hours, and... Uh, he, he he won't be back on again, folks. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that that was a fascinating episode, and I, I want to come back to NK News in a minute. But let's just stay on that, like Steve Began one yeah. for a minute. So this is a, a gentleman that was on President Trump's team, yes. working in North. He was meeting the North Korean, the high officials, with Chairman Kim Jong Un, and things like that. Yeah, he was a. Let me. I hope I get his title right. The Deputy uh, Secretary of State. Yes. What, what did you take away? Because I, I just remember not being able to turn it off when I was listening yeah. to it. It was a long time ago, but you, you were... The, was it an in-person conversation or was that one? No, done? we did it via Zoom. He was in uh, in Virginia, I believe. Okay. And I was here in Seoul. Um, I've, I've since met him in person, but at the time we only met on Zoom. 
Uh, and I guess what really struck me about the Steve Began interview was, you know, you, you meet people who believe that um, America only ever acts in bad faith regarding mm. North Korea, uh, that America only has um, uh, belligerent intentions. And I tell you what, Steve Began, I feel like he almost deserves a Nobel Prize because if anyone's ever tried and, and really put himself out there mm. uh to, to meet with the North Koreans and try to work out a deal. That's that he's Steve Vegan's that guy, and and Trump um, empowered him to go out there and to to make deals, to to offer things, uh, and and to have the meetings, and it still didn't work. Right. But um, but boy, Steve certainly tried. Uh, I have yeah. a lot of respect for that. Uh, there was one time he told me in the podcast where uh, he had a meeting with one group of North Koreans in Washington D.C. Uh, and then. Something like 24 hours later, he had another meeting lined up with another group of North Koreans over in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. So he left yeah. meeting one, hopped on a plane, flew over to Stockholm, ready for meeting two. And so North Korea was trying a multiple sort of multi-pronged approach, mm -hmm. but Steve was there for all of that. So mm -hmm. uh, amazing guy. Uh, all respect to him. Hope you're listening, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I got the impression listening to that and just hearing you describe it, it does bring back some memories that you know, it seemed like a... A genuine, like you say, a genuine attempt to do something with North Korea, but it also didn't seem very heavily politicized. It should have been a very political conversation or something right. like that. But yeah. sometimes North Korea is something where you can get positions on the very far left yeah. and on the very far right. Yeah. And and this is all part of the diamond that you describe. And, yeah. and, and you do a great job of talking to all of the people uh, that cover that diamond. But that particular one with Steve... Even though it was high-level politics, it yeah. didn't feel politicized. Yeah. It felt like a felt like a normal person talking to you about trying to do deals. Right. Yeah, I'm guessing if I had a uh, – I did try also to get uh, an interview with uh, John Bolton mm -hmm. uh, multiple times. And there was a, a point at which I was in touch with his secretary. Uh, but in the end, um, they ghosted me. Yeah. Uh, and so that interview never came about. But I, I have a feeling that if I did talk to John Bolton, that it would be a much more political uh, a politicized discussion yeah. on North Korea. Now, you've done two hundred, roughly 270-odd. Yeah, we're getting close to 300. This year, we will uh, reach 300. Excellent. Um, Steve Began is one that yeah, you've mentioned. Um, any other notable standout episodes? I mean, you've had Taeyong Ho on there. Yeah, yeah, he's been on uh, twice, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was great being able to talk to him. Uh, uh, now that I've read his book, I should, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, Get him on again, I suppose. Uh, You're talking about the old. He's not written another one, has he? The, the first no, I mean, I mean one. The first one. Yeah. The, uh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now there was an episode. There was a, a three-parter that I recorded just before Christmas 2018 or 19. It's a few years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was released just before episode 100. Mm. And because we wanted to keep episode 100, that number, for another episode, we yeah. ended up releasing these three episodes with no number, which means it's very difficult to find on the website. So that, okay. that's on me. Uh, but do go uh, to the nknews.org website and oh. do a search for uh, – in the, the in the podcast section, you can click on older. There's a tab for older, uh, older episodes. Mm. Do a search for Miles, M-I-L-E-S. Miles, uh, and it's a three-parter released between episode 99 and 100, and this is a remarkable story, uh, just remarkable. Um, there's a, an American gentleman who went to North Korea years ago with um, some NGO organization mm. and spent, let, I want to say, six months or so living in uh, Rajin Sonbong and uh, working on a farm and helping animals and people and you know, just 
doing good stuff there mm. without getting paid for it. Mm. Uh, and then he left and he wanted to go back in. And so he went back in as a tourist. But this time he was not in Rajin Tsongwe. He went back to Pyongyang. And something went wrong on that trip to Pyongyang. And he was on the last day he fell ill and he said, I can't go. But they bundled him on a plane anyway. And he says he claims to have been beaten I don't know. I wasn't there. He mm. may have been roughed up before, you know, from getting him out of the hotel bed and onto the, the airplane. Maybe he was. Uh, and so he felt that he had unfinished business with North Korea mm. uh, and unfinished business uh, and a message also to give to uh, Kim, uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un. Mm. So he went into uh, far northeast China uh, to the border with North Korea and bought a uh, an inflatable rubber boat mm. uh, and one night, he just crossed that river into North Korea, landing at a military base, mm. and then walked. No one saw. Apparently, no one saw him. So he just kept walking until someone, you know, light. The sun came up. Mm. Uh, it was now daylight. Someone did see him, uh, and then wrestled him to the ground. At which point, he was arrested and uh, spent, I think, close to six weeks uh, as an involuntary guest of the North Korean state. Now, he was an American. Uh, this was after. Um, some other Americans, I think there was uh, Matthew Shepard. No, I might have got the name wrong. There was Matthew somebody. The, mm. There was an American gentleman who tore up his passport uh, at Pyongyang Airport upon arrival and said, I want to uh, seek asylum here. And mm -hmm. uh, he was held for a while. And, and uh, I think Will Ripley of CNN interviewed him in Pyongyang while he was under arrest. And then there was big negotiations to get him out. And so you know, there have been lots of cases of that happening. Here was an American who was arrested after that, but before Otto Warmbier. Mm. Uh, he was held. He was interrogated. This was during American exercises happening in South Korea. So at first they thought he was part of that or he was CIA. Of course, they would immediately expect that. Uh, but they didn't make a big deal about it. It was held. It was dealt with quietly between the North Korean government and um, uh, and the Chinese government and the State Department, I guess. And ultimately, he was handed back to the Chinese without any fanfare or arrest or media uh, attention from the North Korean or even the American media. And he made his way back to America. And it's a, but he wanted to tell the story about that mm. uh, because he felt that he had a message to give to Kim Jong Un. You know, he wrote a, a letter, a very respectful letter to Kim Jong Un, uh, telling him a message that he had to give him. Uh, and so he came on our show to talk about that. And we, at, uh, Chad, uh, the, the boss of NK News, and I, mm. we did some research, talked to some people, and as far as we could make out, every detail of that story checks out. Wow! Uh, he showed us photographic evidence. He showed us some texts that he had had with someone in the White House because he had a, a tablet with him and somehow was able to get a Wi-Fi signal across the 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 war the the river, mm. Wi-Fi signal from China while he was in North Korea. So he was able to, to text back to the U.S. It was crazy, it, it, insane. All of these things that shouldn't have happened, yeah. but apparently did. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about that last day that he was in North Korea. Some big mucky muck came up from Pyongyang uh, in a big car and everything was, was uh, you know, spit-shined and, and uh, spotless before mm. he got there. And he came and, and said, you know, we have word from the, from the top authorities uh, that you're allowed to go. So that may have been... You know, could have been Ri Suyong, Ri Yong-ho, don't know who it was, but it was somebody important who had come all the way from Pyongyang mm. to tell him, right, you've been, you've been pardoned, you can go, and he didn't have to do any jail time, nor did he have to go through a court case. It was amazing, amazing story. 
it's amazing that it checks out. I remember listening to that. I remember getting that boat and he, he goes across the river and then the walking and then the detainment yeah. and things like that. You just said Miles. Yeah. Is that all that's known about this gender? Because that's only one name. Yeah, that's it. That's the only name that we're allowed to give out. Uh, I mean, okay, I know his okay. full name okay, and I've okay, seen okay. his uh, his yeah. documents and yeah, I've yeah. seen uh, he ob- obtained some more documents from the American government through a freedom of information request. So I've, I've looked at all of his stuff. It all checks out. But in public, I'm only going to call him Miles. No, not a problem. It's... The idea that some people would try to get into yeah. North Korea, yeah. rip up their passport when they Knowing there that and... there's every chance he's going to get arrested. He, he did that. Yeah. That is a highly unusual man. And he was so, so, so lucky that he didn't end up like an Otto Warmbier. Yeah. So, so fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, amazing that you got him on that to tell that. Do you wish you'd labeled it differently now? <laughs> is this hard to find one? Or that kind of makes it even a bit more special, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, in it, that it, little it, three part it, hidden. Yeah, you got to get it. It's, kind of, it's like an Easter egg on a. Remember DVDs? Anyway, yeah. it's, it's like that. And so uh, it's an Easter egg on the NK News website. If you, if you dig hard enough, you'll find all three episodes with Miles, an American who got arrested in North Korea. There's also a text based story that one of my colleagues wrote about uh, mm. that interview for those who didn't want to listen to three hours. Uh, but just kind of read a quick text version that that's available to yeah that's uh, and you said that you do like mysteries so there it is you're just leaving little mysteries yeah. for people to find out love that one i do want to say while we're talking about your podcast that the the quality is generally very high like because I, I i struggle to do all this by myself so now i'm doing them in person doing and an, getting an sound admirable job and things fantastic. like this but i do want to point out that the quality of your podcast is generally very high in terms of sound in terms of editing and all things like that how does how did you how does that all play out how did you work that out Is yeah it- when we started five years ago uh so uh, chad o'carroll brought in arias dare who is now the uh, uh he's the outgoing managing editor of nk news or is the sub managing editor anyway there's a yeah. transition happening there he's uh, in the middle of doing a phd at australian national university okay uh in canberra I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, literally. Uh, but he was brought on um, to edit and to be the audio producer of the podcast. So he mm. did that for a couple of years. And then when he got the managing editor job of NK News, the whole website as a whole, so all the text-based stories that my journalists put out every day, mm. uh, then we found another um, uh, another producer, an audio producer, Gabby Magnuson, who mm-hmm. I think at the end of each episode, uh, and she does all the audio leveling and the editing and uh, and then packaging it into a final product that goes out uh, on all the platforms, including YouTube. There's so this, thanks, Gabby. Yeah, yeah. No, there's this one trick that I've noticed recently. I, I, I can't quite recall if you do it on NK News, but I was listening to a BBC uh, In Our Time, it's called. Yeah, uh, with big... Melvin Bragg. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever noticed, and I'm not the first person to say this, that um, at the beginning of each episode... He says hello, mm. and then he goes immediately into the sentence. So, hello, in 1857, and the two men walking down the street. Like, there's no pause, there's no comma. <laughs> there's just, hello, David Tizard has a podcast. You should listen yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. He's got a very, it's not mumbling, but it's it's not the most immediate voice you would choose for radio, but you get used to it after a while, yeah, I think. Yeah. He, I'm a great fan. I've listened to a lot of episodes. Me too. I love it. I love it. I was listening to it, must have been a, about a month or so ago, and I realized that when they have multiple guests, yep. which they do, the guests will come from a different part of the sonic landscape, a different speaker. And so they're slightly panned. So this person speaks and they're coming out the left speaker, not Uh. full on the left, but it's about 30%. And then this guest is on the right. And so it's creating a visual, not not a visual. It's creating a, the image, it's creating the image or the the idea of a physical space through the sound. And so I've started panning 
the voices a little bit. So one comes from this side, one comes from this side, rather than just a oh, wow. central thing. Uh, do, do you it's listen true. to podcasts on a five plus one speaker stereo system? Uh, my my speaker system at home is that. I also listen to them in the car. And when I'm driving, that's generally when I listen to yeah. podcasts a lot. But even in the car with the left and right speakers, I notice that the voices come different. I've got to say, I've, I've never paid much attention to that. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I... I that, that's sort of beyond my ken. I'm mm, maybe something to get. I, uh, it's just something that I've only noticed in the last month, and it's it takes a while to get there. Um, for the, I do notice he rushes his guests a bit sometimes. Though, when they're getting close to the end, he's like, "Can can we get to the point? <laughs> let me come back to you know." He, he does, which I I do feel sometimes that I let yeah. my guests go on a bit, and I, I should become a bit more like Melvin Bragg and jump in. I, I like to get. Uh, we're not doing gotcha journalism at NK News, and so I'm not trying to drive mm. uh, a guest into a corner. To, to you know say a particular thing um, and so I, I'm there to let them tell their story and and to, you know to guide it with some structured questions yeah. but sometimes I have to be aware that um, I'm not going to be able to ask all the questions that I've got uh, and they may come in a different order mm. you know uh, so I've got to be flexible but yeah uh, what was my point oh, my point is that uh, maybe sometimes I should take a, a leaf out of Melvin's book mm. uh, and and hew more tightly to a script and get people to you know, uh, to, to rush to move it along and to get back to the point and uh, I don't necessarily mean that we have to have a producer come in at the end offering tea and coffee but you know like that seems does. a bit of a gimmick yeah I haven't little, quite little got bit, that yeah. I haven't quite and then got with that. A, and now here's some bonus material we because we don't have a, a set time he's a radio show right yeah. so presumably it has to fit between a news break at the start and at the, at the end of the hour now in my case we're not uh, restricted by that so there's more flexibility to just put the bonus material in the actual podcast mm. And I want to speak about NK News. I'll, I'll come back to the podcast, but because we've said this name NK News a couple of times, I, yeah. I, I just want to make one point on this for people because I, I recommended it to somebody as a as a resource as well the other day. But there's some high-level people writing for – high-level is the wrong word. There's some very smart, intelligent, and yeah. good people. It, it, it's certainly – because people could get it twisted. They could associate it with other things, Daily NK or something. Right. But the people writing, whether it's former ambassadors yep. – uh, whether it's scholars like Fyodor Tetitsky yeah. or Andrei Lankov, yeah. you know these these are these are the best people in the field that yeah. write for NK News. Yeah, very fine minds. Yeah, mm. oh, I've been lucky to have uh, most of those people on my podcast. Uh, we really uh, try at NK News not to. I mean, we try. We don't have a political line. We're not driving. Mm. Um, you know, any. Um, you know, we're not out there saying rah rah, North Korea is good, or boo boo, it's it's bad. You know, we're mm-hmm. trying to report on it as objectively as as is possible in journalism. Yeah, yeah, no, and I applaud you for that. And that's where, just going back to that diamond, you do get the left on your podcast. Yeah, I, I've heard people advocating, you know, some very. Um, aggressive takes against American imperialism yeah. and supporting North Korea. And then on the other side, I've I, I've heard the other takes on your podcast. So it really does run the spectrum. Um, any. Sadly, you know, um, not everyone appreciates that. I have had, I've approached one guest in the last six months who I was very, very keen to get on uh, because this person had spent a lot of time in North Korea doing good work, doing mm. um, aid work in North Korea, uh, and had written a book about that. And I wanted to get the person on the podcast, but um, was told in response to my request that uh, I'm too political. Well, I can't remember if it's I'm too political or we're too political, but anyway. The answer was too political, won't come on the show. Yeah. So uh, that was really regrettable. Uh, and I did have one, I had one guest who, who came on and who thought 
better of it after the podcast was recorded. It was in the bag mm. and said, actually, I don't like... Um, First, the first it was quality of the audio, and then it was I wasn't prepared. I was distracted, and I didn't say good things. And um, we're not going to release that. And well, we released it anyway because you know there was an oh, understanding wow. that mm. you know, once you agree to come on the podcast, we're not there to edit and, and to you know cut sound bites and to make somebody look bad. Mm. But we'll, we re- generally release the whole conversation, minus some um, cutting out of ums and ahs and maybe a restarted sentence or something like that. So mm-hmm. we released that whole episode and uh, uh, didn't hear from that person again. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it is a political thing. And I think despite that, you keep a, uh, a very straight bat on a very difficult wicket, to use a cricket analogy. Yes, cricket. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me perhaps a little bit about Dr. Andre Lankoff? Because he's one of the, he's one. Of, I'm not sure of his role in NK News, but a very influential figure. Perhaps yeah, I believe there. he's a director of the company, if I'm not mistaken. I've yeah. known Andre. I've been lucky enough to know him um, since we both lived in Australia. So I think I probably first met him in 2002 or three. Yeah. Uh, which, gosh, that's 20, 20 years now. So yeah. I've really known him for a long time. Uh, he's a wonderful fellow, a very fine mind. Uh, it's hard to keep him sitting still for a long time. He's very mobile. Okay. Uh, when he talk, when he um, gives a, a talk on stage, you know, he doesn't like to stand at a podium and into the mm. microphone. He'll he'll walk around a lot. So, mm. uh, uh, but he's uh, yeah. He he also I, what I really respect about Andre is that. Um, as well as his breadth and depth of knowledge, he doesn't get too political either, right? He doesn't. Uh, he, he's not a man who shouts about ideology. You know, he's mm. a man who, who talks about facts. Yeah, yeah. Facts on North Korea, facts on South Korea. He yeah. just seems like a Korean really history. good scholar of yeah. Korea. Yeah, and he's one of the few people I think I'm not sure how many have done it to have written books on both South Korea yep. and North Korea. Yeah, and. Maybe I'm getting this wrong. Studied in Kim Il-sung University? Yeah, I think uh, he spent a semester there in 1984, if I'm not mistaken, when he was still a, uh, a student at uh, the Leningrad University in Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent a, a, a semester in, in Kim Il-sung University. Yeah. yeah that, that was not uncommon at the time for Soviet students of Korean studies. It certainly, you know, there was no relationship with South Korea until, I want to say, 1992 or so, thereabouts, 91, 92. Uh, and so Soviet students, if they were learning Korean, they would go to North Korea, um, not South Korea. I've had a couple of students at um, Seoul Women's University. This must be about seven years ago. We get a lot of exchange students from various all parts of the world. And uh, there's a couple of Chinese students in this one particular class. And when they were introducing themselves, Tagi Soge, um, doing some introductions, they said, one of the, the young women said, I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed to be here because my first choice was Pyongyang. Mm. And I, I can come to South Korea anytime I want, but my friends are in Kim Il-sung University. And my South Korean students were just looking at them. Like yeah. this was this was like mind blowing, this idea that people would choose to go there or that it was possible to yep. go there and yep. that people do go and study there. One of the things, I, I just maybe tell you this story about when I do, um, uh, because I teach North Korea a little bit as part of my courses in inter-Korean relations, it's always, it finds a home in there. Yeah. And uh, I'll show uh, generally my South Korean students, I'll, I'll show them some pictures of Pyongyang, which includes sort of um, schools with dirt football fields and people standing around, but still you see the pictures of the two uh, Chairman Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il on, on, on the school buildings. And then maybe the next one will be some apartments standing with blue skies. And then the, uh, what was it called? Is it the Arirang Stadium? 150,000 seat of stadium in the 
Uh, there's a May Day Stadium and there's a Kim Il Sung Stadium. I think the May Day Stadium is the biggest one. The big, the one where uh, President Moon Jae In gave his, yeah, his and where they did the Arirang um, show when they put that on. That's what I'm yeah. thinking of. And my my students begin then to sort of look at me and go, uh, and then I show them the water park, and by that point they're sort of falling off their chairs and saying, Professor, where's where's North? This is not North Korea. There's this real disbelief that they get, and I, I think that comes down to what you were saying earlier that. In South Korea, for some people, there's a kind of disinterest or a boredom with mm. North Korea. That it's not something that they've ever looked for or found out. And when they're shown certain elements of it, and I do show also uh, countryside and poverty and things after that, yeah. I, I make sure. But it's just interesting to see their reactions to those photos. Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely right to say that most South Koreans under the age of 40 have very, very little interest in North Korea. Yeah, uh, It tends to be reserved for either very, very old people who are sadly dying off now because they still have relatives in North Korea, uh, brothers, children, wives, etc. Mm. Uh, and then you have the generation who went through university in the 1980s and early 1990s who, for some of them, uh, were ideologically committed to a, uh, a North Korean vision of Korean unification, mm -hmm. uh, the so-called Jusapa or Juche Saranghanan Pa, the group that loves North Korean Juche ideology. So, so they're interested or may, if they're still in, I mean, they were back in the 80s and 90s, they mm -hmm. may have lost interest now. But certainly most young Koreans under the age of 40, this doesn't feature on their, uh, on their radar screens whatsoever. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, for the podcast, just maybe to close out this part, any any sneak previews of what's coming up or the 300th episode or or something like that? Any big guests that we should be looking out for? Yeah, well, uh, we're uh, I'm always trying to get on a certain uh, ex-president um, of the United States who uh, who may run again, President so. Obama. Oh no, one might run again. Yes, so let's see if we can get through to uh, to Donald Trump. If you're watching. You know? Yeah, uh, and of course, uh, would always love to get uh, anybody from the Pyongyang leadership on the show. So whether that be Kim Jong Un, Kim Yo Jong, Kim Jue, even heck, I'll have any of them on the show. Mm. Maybe you we don't normally do an episode through an interpreter, but uh, you know, certainly for a leader from North Korea, we could make an exception. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I, I would just be I would be clicking on that as soon as I saw it for, because it's it's yeah. North Korea told by North Koreans, yeah. and I, I think that's so important. I know yeah. there's a lot of talk these days about identity and intersectionality and authenticity, but well, and representation. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you very much. But yeah, North Korea is told by North Koreans. I would I would click on that so so fast so quickly. Um, Maybe, but then, of course, that raises the question of how representative is somebody from the Pyongyang elite of the entire nation, right? So we've had yeah. some North Koreans on the show. Even Taehyung Ho was once a member of the elite, but we've yeah. also had, uh, uh, and we're going to have a, another North Korean uh, later on, I think, uh, in a month or two, to talk about. Um, well, I don't want to give the game away, but anyway, mm. uh, there's a lot of North Koreans, and they all represent their own experiences in North Korea. And uh, and Kim Il Sung's isn't uh, Kim Jong Un's is not that. Uh, representative of everybody, but he's certainly mm, 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 he's certainly very important. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's interesting the the nature of North Korean stories, especially defector testimonies and all the uh, these books that come out. It's a market. Uh, me and you have spoken about the the sort of serialized nature of other books, not defector testimonies, but these books that have been written like in, in with podcasts in mind and dramas and movies. It's it, yeah. it, it, it's all going that way. Um, 
Can we talk about South Korea for a little bit? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I've lived in South Korea for a long time now, so let's you, talk about it. You have. Um, how old are you, Jacko? I will turn 50 in August. 50 in August. You look good for 50. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think you carry yourself as, as younger than 50 as well. You have a good sense of humor for it. You arrived in South Korea. When is this? 1990s? It was uh, July 1996. Wow. I was just shy of my 23rd birthday. And at that time, you know, I was uh, super young, right? I was uh, fresh out of university, uh, arrived here and very quickly learned that being young earned you no respect in Korea. <laughs> uh, and now... You say people disrespected you when you first... Got, was... uh, you're down the pecking order. And, then, yeah. and now at 50, I... I've, I don't know if I want to be respected. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be fifty. Yeah. 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 I kind of miss the miss being young a little bit sometimes. When you're young, you want to be old. When you're old, you want to be young. It's yeah, always you the other person's rice cake is always bigger, isn't it? Um, and youth is wasted on the young, as they say. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm fighting age not very gracefully, but I'm doing my best, and with my backwards caps and all of that. 1996. What did it, this is a ridiculous question, but I've asked it before to people, what did it smell like here? What was it like? What were the streets like? Because I would imagine from 1996 to 2023, there's huge changes in South Korea. Yeah, uh, I spent my first year living up in Paju, which oh. is the, uh, the, the county and, well, no, the city in Gyeonggi province that borders on the demilitarized zone. Uh, particularly, there's a little part of Paju called Kumchon, which I lived in and I, I taught there for the Kumchon Office of Education. Uh, and it was um, kind of semi-rural. I mean, I lived in an apartment building, but not far from where I lived. Mm. There were still undeveloped areas uh, and, and low-rise houses. So it was, uh, and, and not uh, take a bus from there and you would see rice fields. So it was, uh, was semi-rural. Uh, and the smells, um, you know, what? one of the abiding things is going to the cinema and people would buy a grilled or roasted dried squid yeah. cut to shreds yeah. to eat in the enclosed space of the cinema. And that smell travels. And I don't like eating squid in any of its forms, <laughs> whether it's raw, deep fried, or dried, yeah. uh, desiccated, and then roasted on a hot flame. Uh, but that that was a, a, an extremely powerful smell. Kimchi I got used to quite quickly. I'd, mm. I'd been warned about it uh, by a friend of mine back in Australia. Uh, but I, I found that very quickly I developed a taste for it. So um, kimchi was no problem, uh, nor was the garlic. I'm a big fan of garlic. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, the, the smell of dried squid. The, now Roasted. Roasted, yeah. I, I might have told this story before that one of the first uh, oh, sorry, one experiences. Oh, sorry, Go on. To this day, if I walk into a coffee shop and smell artificial hazelnut flavor yes. infused coffee, because yes. that used to be the there were two kinds when you came in '96. There were two kinds of coffee you could get. You could get instant, you know, granular ground. Is that like the Maxim granular sticks. coffee? Maxim, yeah, yeah. Before sticks, though, you had to have a bottle, a jar, uh, or a can, uh, and yeah, instant coffee or this filter brew that had an artificial hazelnut flavor. And it was made, you know, they were saving on those beans. It was made very weakly so you yeah. could see through it. It looked like dirty dishwater and it yeah. didn't taste much better. And to this day, if I walk in and I smell an artificial hazelnut flavor, I'm instantly transported back to 96 and my stomach does a little turn. I'm like, get me out of here. Give me some real coffee, please. Yeah. 
uh, the place where I worked, they used to have this like little brew thing and it yeah. was that. And it was, I mean, and you would drink out these little paper cups that are about this big yep. and you put it in there. And me and my friend, Chris Truder, he owns the Bry Republic now in Ito on. Huh. We would, we would sometimes go for it. It'd be like eight cups of that a day just to, just to get something. But it was disgusting oh. because there wasn't really that big, like now it's ice yep. Americanos all day, every day. But back then, it was it was more like green tea. I'm talking 2005 when yeah. I first came oh, to gosh. 1996. Yeah. It, it just wasn't like that. But when I, I uh, left Korea for four years at the end of 99, and just as I was leaving, oh. in October 1999, oh. the very first Starbucks opened near Ehua Women's University. The very first. And that, now I am, as anyone who knows me will tell you, I am not a fan of of the uh, the great Seattle-based coffee house, and I avoid it wherever mm. I can. Okay, but on what grounds is it just commercial? Oh, it's, or? it's mediocre. It is so that I'm not impressed by their coffee at all, and okay. it's highly priced. Yeah. So when I lived um, in Jongamdong behind Korea University, there was a wonderful coffee shop still there. It's called yeah. Brown Bricks, run by a couple, yeah. uh, and they made excellent coffee with heart and soul, and they owned it, so they ran it. So they had, you know, it was in their best interest mm. rather than the uh, the part-time workers, the albaseng, as we call them, who work at the Starbucks. And yet some people in my apartment complex would walk past Brown Bricks, mm. cross a six-lane major road mm. to buy a more expensive Starbucks and then walk back to the apartment again. And I, I couldn't – it beat me. I, I, I couldn't understand why would you walk further for a poorer product. So – um, so I, I, I resent Starbucks, its success, because it's so poor quality, mm. uh, and yet people love it. So anyway, w- what I will thank Starbucks for doing mm. is for kicking off the coffee revolution. By opening up the first tour uh, at Ihua in 1999, they began to teach Koreans that uh, espresso as a basis for a drink, because still not to this day, most Koreans don't drink espresso by itself, but yeah. making a, uh, an espresso coffee and then using that to make your, uh, your long black or your uh, latte or your flat white or something or a macchiato. So that's a good thing. And, and so that started the, uh, the revolution. And now we, we can't throw a rock outside this studio without hitting three coffee shops no. in separate directions, two of which will sadly be Starbucks. But anyway, the world has changed since 99. How many coffees do you drink a day? Not that much. Uh, my wife and I are very big fans of a, uh, a little place in, uh, in, in Mun called 4B. Okay. I don't know if you would call it a chain, but it's all uh, there are maybe six of them, mm. all owned by the same gentleman. Mm. He has a roastery up in Paju, of all places, wow. my uh, Korean spiritual hometown. Uh, and so we buy a bag of beans there every week, mm. 200 grams of, uh, of beans, and I'll, I'll make it at home. Uh, so that's two cups with breakfast every morning, and then maybe another one in the afternoon. Sometimes I skip, so okay. I don't overload. But we drink a lot of four B coffee, and, and two in I the morning. In, two in the morning, yeah. uh, black. Yeah. And then if I go into a four B coffee shop, uh, I will have their uh, their nine ounce uh, flat white, which is so smooth and velvety. Uh, it's it's like a drug, and after having one, I feel immediately like I'm ready for another one. But I always hold myself back. But yeah. and it's only four thousand won for a nine ounce. Bl- Why would you pay more for a poorer coffee? I ask you. There's just no logical sense there. You know, yeah. the, the market should have sorted this out by now. But anyway, if you're in Kwangwon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and if you find, or even in Hapjong. Um, or I think there's one in, at Yongsan Station and in Ulchiro, 4B. That's the number, F-O-U-R, and the letter B, 4B. <laughs> it's a free advertisement. I hope I get some free copies out of this. <laughs> yeah. There's no guarantees in life, but you've got to wonder. It's... Uh... I used to, you, you mentioned like a flat white. That's a, an Australian term for a coffee with milk, is it? 
Australia and New Zealand both claim to be the uh, the derivative of uh, of a flat white. It is a, a lot like a latte, but I want to say that the um, my understanding is that, uh, and my experience is mm. that the foam uh, is is a, a cream, more a velvety foam. The bubbles mm. are smaller. Okay. Um, so it's uh, it's like something between a flat white and a cappuccino, and it's the best thing in the world. It, it's a, a wonderful. Now, if you're ordering, an, uh, that's hot, of course. In, in my mm. world, coffee is hot, unless you specifically ask for an iced coffee. If you don't ask for iced coffee, mm. you should be getting hot yeah. as a default. Korea no longer has a default. If you just go in and say, I'll have a cup of coffee, they will ask you, do you want it hot or iced? Yeah. Now, if you make an yeah. iced flat white, that is no longer a flat white, because you have no foam, you just have milk. Mm. So ice flat white doesn't exist. It's just a uh, an iced milk coffee. I, I grew up drinking tea and coffee. And you would have your coffee, but you would just put a little bit of milk in there yep. and maybe a sugar. And it seems now you either get a black coffee or a coffee that's all milk. Yeah. But the thing that I grew up with where you just put a, a dash of milk yep. in your tea or coffee and stir it to create the nice color and, and you would judge it on that, that seems to have gone. Now, uh, on the uh, odd occasion when I do find myself in a Starbucks and needs must, yeah. I order uh, their daily coffee, yeah. which is, I think it's a drip, it's not an espresso. Yeah. And then I ask for a little bit of milk, milk. and I throw it in there yeah. and, and that will that's suffice. Right. Yeah, that's what I do. And they look at me, I was like, no, yeah, I just want a bit of milk. And Some of them, I think the... Uh, this is free advertising. One of the Starbucks that I've been to yeah. has a, uh, a thermos with milk in it. I know the things that you mean. Yeah, and you can just go over there yeah, you can and go there and help in. yourself. They yeah. don't all have that, no. but some do. Some of them don't even take money. Uh, cash. The one on my university campus, you try, I tried to pay by cash once because I needed some change for a, a car park or something like that, music studio. I needed some. So I tried to change a man one and buy my coffee. Ah, that's like, already happening in Korea. Wow, I didn't know like, that. They're like, we don't take cash. Korea is very cashless. I, my first ever trip, and so far only, to New York City yeah. in January 2020, just as COVID was beginning, yeah. I went into a, uh, an Australian-themed coffee shop in Manhattan uh, the morning of my arrival. Mm. And I, I said, uh, I'd like a flat white. And there was a, uh, I think he was a French barista, and he made a great flat white. And I went to pay, and he said, no cash. Card only. I'm like, wow, in New yeah. York too. Yeah. How about that. Uh, I've like, never been to a coffee shop that wouldn't take cash. I've got cash here. Do you want it? No, we don't and want there, it. There wasn't even a tip jar. You had to pay a tip for, with a card too. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't have my card with me right now. I've got cash. Yeah. Uh, and he said, you know what? It's free. So I got a, my first coffee in uh, New York. It was free. So that barista, if you're out there, whoever you are, I didn't get your name, but bless you. Um, like talking about that change from Korea with their terrible hazelnut coffee, the, the, the smell of which makes you sick Oof. and uh, what they can do today in 4B with the beans from Paju. Yeah. You see those remarkable transformations. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I've, yeah. you know, Mike Breen. Yeah, right. I work for one of my jobs. I work for he's one of my bosses. He's Mike one Green. of your bosses. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I like, there's a reason I'm asking this question. One of the things what I like about Mike Breen is he talks about the culture here. A lot of people will write books and it's about economic development or yep. political change. And it doesn't ever talk about people and the way they act and the way they behave. And, and what Mike Breen's books do and, his, and many of his columns is he, he brings to life the behavior and the actions mm -hmm. of the people. Yeah. And I think that's very, it, it, it's so important, but I see less and less of it these days. I think people are a little bit afraid sometimes to talk about culture. And, and so I want to f use that to frame the question in terms of 
there's 50 odd million Koreans. They, they're all different and, and they all do their own thing. But what have you learned or what, what do you observe here about the behavior or the, the way when you walk around society, how people move, how they act and, and these kind of things? Do you have any observations on Korean culture as it's behaved and acted out? Yeah. Um... Is it pali bali? Are people pushing? Do you? Uh, I'll give you another example. When I first arrived, um, people never used to queue. So when you were waiting for the bus oh, outside, in, huh? wow. in Kwangamun, right, there wouldn't be an orderly queue. There was yeah. just this kind of triangular thing. Uh, and when the bus or the elevator arrived, yeah. people would just get on. Because I remember going to Hong Kong, maybe in about 2006, 2007, and seeing a line of people on the street yeah. and thinking, what are they doing? Yeah. <gasps> They're queuing, and I'd become so not used to it. Yeah. And now, of course, Korean people queue. They, they, they line up and they do that. And so that's not good. That's not bad. It's just different. But that was one of the things I observed with, with the queuing. Well, I mean, arguably, if you're the person who got there earlier, it is bad that people don't, when people don't queue, right? It is. Yeah, I'm British. I love to queue. That's uh, what we do. So when I came here in 96, uh, queuing at a, um, at a bank or a post office was not yet quite the norm they didn't have numbers for everybody yet and mm. they didn't have the you know with the velvet ropes out there to guide the corral people into what kind of banks lines. do you go to with velvet ropes R- ropes <laughs> yeah passion ropes <laughs> on the, on the red Flax. carpet yes uh anyway yes you're right that there wasn't <clears throat> excuse me wasn't a lot of orderly queuing then and there certainly is now i did notice though that um uh there was some Exceptions, of course, at the airports, people mm-hmm. have to queue. Uh, and there were some buses, long distance buses from Kwanghoman, where um, you couldn't stand in them, you had to have a seat. And for those buses, people did line up quite early on before they would line up for other buses. Um, so you'd see long lines of people in front of the Donghua Duty Free Building at Kwanghoman. What's mm-hmm. going on there? And then a bus would turn up and everyone would get on in an orderly fashion because you had to. Uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's something that uh, Koreans um, have have learned over time, and uh, they're much better at queuing now. Uh, and sure, me me being raised in Australia meant that I also uh, respect queuing. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so I'm <coughs> very happy to see Koreans doing it. Now it, it's become quite a cliche to say in Korea that you know um, it's it's bali bali everything's fast. And yeah, that's true. I think that's one of the first things you learn day one is that. Uh, People are rushing always, yeah. and um, and then that rushing on the street often means bumping into people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Korean Korea is not a society where you are always apologizing to people who you don't know. All right, right. Uh, relationship with somebody implies certain obligations, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. non-relationship takes away a lot of those obligations. Uh, so if somebody steps on your toe or pushes past you, they may say, uh, I'm sorry. That's happening more frequently mm-hmm. these days, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they've traveled or lived overseas. But it's not ingrained in every Korean that bumping into someone means you've got to step back and say, I'm sorry. So that's a, uh, that's something that you, you'll notice. I guess it, it's very in your face or it's in your elbow or it's in your, your cheek mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and, and people have asked me about that for years, and I just say that yeah, in, in Korea, A, people are rushing, and B, if they don't know you, those sub- social obligations don't necessarily exist. Yeah, and that includes to not holding doors open sometimes. Doors uh, open. Again, that's changing a little bit. <clears throat> like you say, not ingrained, and it's very unusual to come here and all of a sudden doors not be o- held open for you when you walk through. Yeah. If, if somebody bumps into me in England, I say sorry. 
Right. Like they bumped into me, but yeah. I was, like, I was sorry, very British like this. Yeah. yeah. And there's also, I, I've noticed a lot more small talk on the street. Like I'll be standing, if, ah. I'm in, if I'm in the UK, I'll be standing at a line for a coffee. It won't be a Starbucks because obviously we hate Starbucks. Well, um, and and the person the person next to me will say, oh, nice day, isn't it? Or there'll be this little kind of small talk that happens between people waiting for a bus or getting on somewhere or just these little comments that come in. Do, I really... Now, you, as a clear foreigner, does this small talk happen to you in Korean? No. But I do it to people. Yeah. And I realized oh, I it was only when I compared them, I was like, wow, it's kind of quiet here. People don't, uh, you don't talk to people as much while you're just like that passing comment yeah, or yeah. that little observation. It, it, it's a lot more silent, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you know, although, I mean, being a foreigner, gosh, and going back again to when I first came here in 96, and especially yeah. living out in Paju, uh, as a, uh, pardon me, a six foot four white guy in Paju, uh, and, and I lived with a a six foot plus black guy in Paju, and so we were two of us living in the same house. So we attracted a lot of attention yeah. wherever we went, uh, and so people would often say, you know, miguk saram, and they would shout it at me, or they would call hello to my back after I'd passed them, mostly children, mm. um, and and that's. Happen, that happens a lot less now. Mm -hmm. But here's a funny thing. On the way here to the studio today, yeah. two elderly people, clearly over 70, uh, were out walking. The woman was with a dog. She was a good few, maybe five meters ahead, and her husband was walking behind. Mm. And I passed him first, mm. and he said, he called out to his wife, eh, eh, wagogin, wagogin. <laughs> Good impression. I could... And then he called out to me, hello, and waved. And I'm like, okay. So I'm walking, and I'm now ahead of both of them, and I have to yeah. turn around and uh, do a little small talk. Hello. Yeah. Hey, nice to see you. Yeah. Have a nice day. And off, you know, keep going. And I thought, wow, that hasn't happened to me in a long time. And it's not normally people over 70 doing that to me. Right. It used to be kids. So uh, it's a rarity now, but it used to happen quite a bit. Yeah. And I reckon the old boy that said hello to you, you would have been quite pleasantly surprised because you probably spoke to him in Korean and you were quite polite. You know, um, I'm not a language absolutist. If someone starts at me in English, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I was okay, you know, yeah, but the, yeah, and then, but then the woman switched to Korean, and then I think I said "Annyeong Gaseo," and then I kept walking. So you know, we yeah. did a bit of both. You know, yeah, we, we yeah. went back and forth. Yeah, um, we spoke a little bit about <clears throat> North Korean comic books. I was on one of your tours recently. Uh, you, you took us down the Changgechan with yeah. uh, 25 students I had coming over. And thank you for that. It was, it was wonderful. And you were mentioning some literature. You were mentioning some uh, movies. Yeah. Korean movies, Korean music, Korean books. Like uh, somebody uh, messaged me like, David, what Korean movies should I watch? So I gave a list of four just off the top of my head. Quickly put off an email like this this morning. Yeah. I said The Housemaid, 1960. Love that movie. Yeah. The 1960 version. Uh, I said Peppermint Candy. Yeah. Memories of Murder and JSA. I went for those four just as like, just watch those and then come back and see where you go. Jacko. South Korean movies, music, dramas, books. Like, uh, is there anything that you've you've found while you've been here that you've loved that people listening like, oh, I'll go and watch that. I'll go and read that. I'll go listening to that. Uh, yeah, movies. Um, everyone should at some stage watch uh, Aimless Bullet. It's a um, it's a slow going movie and it's long, 
but it's definitely worth watching to get a sense of where South Korea was uh, after the Korean War at the start of the 1960s. Mm. Uh, it was it was somehow released in that period after uh, Syngman Rhee's overthrow and before Park Chung-hee's coup. That's like the housemaid, I think, was that small right, window. Was, yeah, window. And, and so this movie, it went out to, uh, I think the only copy we have left was the one that was sent to the San Francisco Film Festival. Oh, wow. Um, and it had um, white subtitles written as if with Tipex on the film <laughs> itself. <laughs> and then all copies back here in Korea were either lost or destroyed because uh, it was out of favor. It yeah. gave a very bleak, depressing picture of, of South Korea, uh, which was not welcome during Park Chung-hee's time. So I think it's a great film. Everyone should watch it. And it does show a bit of, uh, of Chong Ge-chon uh, under its, in the process of it being covered over. Is it on YouTube? Aimless yeah, the whole it? thing is on YouTube. Mm. In fact, the, the Korean Film Archive has been doing a good job of putting some of the, uh, the older works for which I guess the copyright had expired or something, mm. uh, putting some of the older stuff on YouTube in its entirety. So go, by all means, and, and trawl through the Korean Film Archive. You can find lots of interesting stuff there. What is, what is the Aimless Bullet? Does that give it away? Why is it called Aimless Bullet? Is it, is, is, is it like a, a man that's just lost in life or something? Or? It's, yeah, it, it's based on a, uh, on a short story that a lot of Koreans used to read, I'm not sure if they still do, mm. uh, have to read for their middle or high school Korean language curriculum. So it was a short okay. story that was part of, you know, uh, everyone read it. I've not read it. I've just read, watched the film. Um, but it, it's based, it's, it's about this, this family of people who are um, refugees from the north who have settled in Hebangchon in Seoul. Um, yeah, so it's a familiar oh, neighborhood. Wow. Uh, and the, the father of the family he works, I think, in an accounting firm or bookkeeping firm. Mm. Uh, the, the elderly, his elderly mother is traumatized and bedridden. And she keeps saying, you know, Gaja, let's go, let's go to the north, let's go back. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's, and then there's, you know, there's another number, a couple of siblings who are uh, not in a good way. And, and then the, the sister ends up becoming a, uh, a sex worker for American soldiers, and uh, the, there's a lot of sadness wow. in there. There's a lot of tragedy. So it's kind of a, a picture of South Korea writ small yeah. after the Korean War. Does it show Bang Chon? In the, uh, do you get any depictions of it? Uh, do you get to? See, you said you mentioned the Chang'e Chan. Yeah. Do you get to see Bang Chon in the? 60s? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, not filmed in a studio. I mean, it's filmed out there uh, on for that alone. Yeah. You got to watch it. Um, so that's a great one from early on. And then in the 1990s, there were some good movies made. Uh, you already mentioned Peppermint Candy or Bakas Hatung. That's a great film. I love that movie. Uh, there's also one called uh, Christmas in August, Parody Christmas, which is a, uh, uh, a sad, sweet melodrama. A uh, lot of crying if you watch that. Mm. Um, <laughs> they, they, they love a cry. Yeah, they do. They do. They, they, there are a lot of tear jerkers in Korean films. It's true. Yeah, yeah. It, which which has made me because I was used to these kind of you know James Bond movies yeah. or something like that where the good guy kills the bad guy gets the girl and it's yeah. this happy ending. And in South Korea, there is a lot of emotion and tears. And I was watching them and never getting them. And I yeah. look around me and all the Koreans are like yes. Yeah. And it resonates. And there's one from the early 1990s called, uh, I think the English title is A Dog Day Afternoon, is it Ke Gatanare Ohu, mm. um, which I've only seen on Australian television. I don't know if it's even a famous thing in Korea at all, but it was a great sort of social critique in the form of a movie. Mm. Uh, early 2000s, Save the Green Planet, Chiguru Jikura. Okay. Mm. That is a, a tour de force. What a film. Uh, wonderful film, that one. Wife and I both love that one. Um, 
Have you seen Decision to Leave? Have you seen yeah, Park recently. Tunnel? Now, um, my wife told me that I have to watch it again because I didn't. <laughs> uh, no, I probably yeah, do because yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't quite get the full value out of it. Um, so uh, it was unlike Park Chan-wook's other films. Mm. Uh, so apparently I should go back and watch it once more, give it another try. Mm. I mean, I didn't think it was a bad film. I just didn't see why people were raving about it. So I've got to give it another go. I, I, I just came away from it thinking this is amazing. I'm not sure why. I think it's a vibe in that you're watching it and there's this cinematography and sometimes nothing much is really happening but I love the fact that I didn't know what was going to happen I love watching movies where things unfold and I'm I'm watching this and I cannot predict what's going to happen I I definitely got that from that movie an amazing cinematography and there's I believe there's symbolism happening on various levels that I've yet to unpack with water and eyes mountains yeah yeah, again, why I should watch it again. Um, and now there is a movie where you know what's going to happen at the end of the film because it's it's history, but uh, it's still great film. It's um, in English, it's called The President's Last Bang. It's in mm, Korean, yeah. it's called Kute Kusaramdu, and mm. it's uh, about the assassination of of Park Chung Hee. Mm. Uh, it was released, I want to say, two thousand five. Um, the, the release was delayed because there was a lawsuit, I think, filed by Park Geun-hye or, or people who were friendly to her who wanted to have um, the news footage that top and tailed the movie that showed the funeral procession for Park Chung. He wanted to have that removed because I said, this is not a documentary, but by using this news footage, it kind of portrays itself as a mm. documentary. It is true that it's not not everything that happened in that movie happened that same way 100% in real life, mm. um, but it is a fabulously made dark comedy. Um, one of my... Friends said that it was like uh, the Korean next best thing to a Korean version of a, of a Coen Brothers movie. Okay, it's, yeah, it's, I can see that. I uh, can see it's that. such a great film. Imagine th- there've been quite a few um, movies. The the new Lee Jong Jae one about the hunt, and I'm trying to remember the yeah. Lee Byung Hyun one about um, Nam San. Uh, right, the. Uh, I forget the name. The, the man next standing, I think, is the English title. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Nam San Bu Jang Dul, I think. Yeah. I think it's that, which is sometimes always interesting how the Korean and English names are often so different. But yeah. imagine having to play a president or one of these people. I've just always thought about it. Like, how would you go about doing that, preparing that? Because it just seems, I, I guess it's just the same as when people do the crown or something and they yeah. play the queen or they play Maggie Thatcher or something like this. But yeah. it must be so interesting being an actor and going, right, I'm going to play Pak Tang or someone so much larger than life right. than you than you imagine. Yeah, I, I I asked you about North Korean people. Have you met any South Korean? This is it's an excuse to name drop, but I love these movies. By the way, um, Aimless Bullet and Christmas in August. I've seen neither of those, and oh, I, I, I'm going to look out for them. Um, in terms of South Korean people, now you won't have met ex President Park Chung Hee. We do know some people that have met him. Um, have you met any? President, interesting figures. Park Chan-wook, has he come across your path or anything like that, or no. on on your travels or any interesting South Korean people? I was once behind Im Young Bak in line at a coffee shop when he was still mayor of Seoul <laughs> before he became president. Uh, and was I, it, it wasn't a Starbucks then. Uh, and I said hi to him. It wasn't a Starbucks. <laughs> it was a coffee shop. It may it may have been a chain. It was actually inside City Hall. Okay, the old City Hall, not the new one. Uh, and I said hi to him, and, and he said hi, and it was awkward, and he left, and that was the end of that. When he was still mayor of Seoul. He was still mayor of Seoul. He was mayor of Seoul before Oh Se-hoon's first time? Oh, very much so, yeah. Very that much. was uh, 2004 when okay. he was still mayor of Seoul. Yeah. 
I don't know when his term ended, but he was there when I was there in 2004. Mm. He had an interesting life, that gentleman. Yeah, oh, very From, much like, so. like head of Hyundai, then to the mayor of Seoul. And, and, and starting off president. as a student demonstrator at uh, Korea University, and mm-hmm. doing a bit of time in jail. Uh, so I yeah, met him. Met uh, the, the late film director, Kim Gi-dok. Um, mm. And I met Bong Joon-ho, both at the same place, but not at the same time. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to be a bother or a fanboy to people mm. when I meet them. So I, t- I tend to sort of say, hey, how you doing? Love that movie. And then get out of their face. Yeah. You know? No, no, I, I get it. I, I, I get that. Um, it's just I, sometimes I'm always curious about people's experiences. When I first arrived here, <clears throat> there was a big crowd of people standing outside Kyobo Bookstore in Gwangamun. Mm. I worked in the Tonghua Duty Free Boarding. That's where I worked. Yeah. And... Um, there was a big crowd of people standing around and I, I got a bit closer to work out what was happening. And there was a gentleman standing there. He was doing a, a one-man protest for the... Um, it's like a screen quota. So oh, there was yeah. like a movie screen quota. In 2005, huh? Yeah. And uh, it was it was Chemin Shik standing there, like ah. in a leather jacket with his own big hair and right. sunglasses. And what just... I, I didn't speak. I just stood there fascinated looking at him. But also how everybody standing around didn't sort of approach him or say anything. They nice. just sort of witnessed him yeah. doing this this protest. I was like, that's really fascinating how they do this. And from then I was like, right, okay, I need to go and watch this gentleman's movies and, and go and find out. He's he's just done a, a new drama called, in Korean it's called Casino or Kajino. Ah. Uh, and in English it's called The Big Bet. And it's like an eight-part series. I've not... It's only come out in the last few months, but I've not seen it written about or talked about. Chemin oh. Shik is a fantastic actor. Uh, I've not seen it either. I, I, I uh, is he old boy? Is that him? He's, he's old boy. Yeah, yeah okay. he's so old boy. That's and, the one that I'm most familiar with. Uh, he also did um, uh, the uh, Eason Shin movie. Oh, I've not seen. Um, it. Uh, what was it? What's Commander like? Myongryang? Yeah, yeah, that one played that. Um, but in this, it's a, it's obviously a gambling movie set in the Korea and the Philippines. Ah. He's just got a big old beer belly. Doesn't look handsome. You know, you watch a lot of Korean yeah. television and drama. Oh, they're yeah. all so beautiful. But in this, just walking around with a big beer belly, not particularly handsome. But I, I really love. I'm enjoying that one at the moment. Oh, good. <clears throat> um, so that's movies. You get into Korean music. You you like music because you you post a lot about music. I like music, but I'm one of those people who who hasn't really gotten into Korean music as much as he perhaps mm. could have. Yeah. Uh, when I came here in the 1990s, it was all about um, early versions of K-pop. Yeah. So there was uh, um, HOT. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to start speaking about HOT. Young Turks Club was number one. I think the week that I came to Paju. Um, Finkel and Zex Kiss and yeah, um, all the, and of course uh, that was in the wake of um, Korea's first rapper. Help me, you remember his name? Not Soteji. Soteji. Yeah. Right. So he had he, that big wave had happened before mm, I came. Yeah, that was um, 1992 to 96. The Soteji right. thing. But yeah. people were still talking about him and emulating him. Yeah. Uh, but he had gone off to his exile period at that mm. stage. Now the year that I came. Um, well, how do I start this? I was very late to the party to discover um, pre-1990s Korean music. So mm. uh, when I watched JSA and I heard that Kim Gwang-sok song, 
Letter to a Private. Yeah. Mm. Uh, which is a real tearjerker song. <laughs> There's a trend there. There's a theme about these tearjerkers. So I didn't find out about him and his music until really late. And he had um, he'd just uh, taken his own life a few months before I arrived in early 1996. So mm. um, I wasn't introduced to him. Nobody, you know said, hey, you've got to check this guy out. And it came much, much later. Yeah. Uh, so I regret that I didn't get into some of the the, the better music. Uh, what I, Sorry, what it's an aesthetic judgment. What mm. I consider mm. to me to be more enjoyable music, I didn't find out about that until much later. What I did discover in the 1990s that I really liked, and I'm still a great fan of, is Chaorim. Yes, okay. Because okay. I, I saw okay. them on TV, um, and it was uh, Kim Yuna was uh, – playing and singing, and I thought, this is not K-pop. This mm. is actual music. Mm. Again, my value judgment there. But uh, So I'm a great fan of Jaurim. Never seen them live, but really love them. Uh, love Jungi Ha, uh, with and without the faces. Uh, you've met him, I think, haven't you? I have met him. Yeah. I've seen him live many times. My wife and I have never seen him live, but we'd love to. Uh, so let me know next time you're going, mm-hmm. and we'll go with you. Uh, yeah, he's he's fabulous. He is. He is. He reminds me in some ways of Nelvis Costello or just these yeah. really yeah. interesting. I've seen Jao Rim live as well, of course. Um, last time I saw those live with my wife was at the Jisan Rock Festival, maybe. Uh, Very um, political she was in her speech. She, uh, she was took time out of the rock set to, to tell everyone to be quiet and how... Um, this is a few years ago and it was a music festival so if my memory escapes me do please forgive me but she was um, fossil fuels and these companies are destroying our environment and they're polluters and we must all use electric cars and and let's go this in the middle of a rock festival and I thought this is quite a and so that made me take notice and yeah Jao Rim they they do some good stuff yeah Uh, so I I think with the the good music uh what I have to look hard to find music that I like in yeah, Korea. Yeah, yeah. If I just switch on the radio and, and hear the stuff that's coming out, it, it doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, no, I don't want to take anything from BTS. I mean, they're doing a great job and, and yeah. you know, more power to them. Yeah. But that's not my music. No, it's not made for you either. It's not made for me. No, exactly. And and you know, not having Jacko as a member of Army will will matter. <laughs> not, not one jot nor tittle. So, it, you know, uh, you go, guys. You do you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, for, for me to find the music that I like, I have to look a bit harder. Mm. Uh, and it's normally smaller, less successful bands. There was a great, years ago, there was a really uh, fun uh, rockabilly band called the um, the Rock Tigers. Yeah. Played, I played some gigs with them. Did you? Yeah. Ha. Huh. So I went and actually followed them to uh, to Japan. Uh, for my friend Stephen Epstein, whom you've yeah, interviewed, yeah. Uh, he made a documentary Hello, Stephen. Uh, about the indie music scene in uh, in Korea. Mm. Uh, and the, that was the, the first film he made, I think it was about 2001, was about the punk scene. Mm. And then he made another one 10 years later about the sort of more broadly the indie scene. Mm. And so to make that film, I went with him to Fukuoka and Kitakyushu to a couple of shows with That's the Rock Tigers and filmed them and interviewed them. And, and they were a really nice group. And I really enjoyed their music. Uh, so, you know. For those that don't know, um, Rock Tigers are a rockabilly band. And, and, and they look the part. Yeah. They very much kind of dress up. And I don't want to call it cosplay, but they look as if they're like 1950s greasers. I might yeah. be getting my words wrong. Yeah, maybe that's the right word. But they, they would use a double bass in their yeah. performances and they would be jumping about and there's lots of leather and flames and fire yeah. um, on, on their designs, but a very energetic. And there was they, they were fronted by a, a female singer. Velvet Gina. Velvet Gina, yes. yes Who has disappeared from the scene. I don't know where she is. I hope she's well. 
These these were all names coming back to me. I remember seeing and playing them, uh, playing with them. Um, There was a place called Banana uh, in Itaewon, down Mm. one of the alleys. And that was where I first saw. I can remember when I first heard Jangi Ha on the radio. I remember where I was. I can remember the first time I saw. Uh, the Rock Tigers. Yeah. They're all the memories. That's how do I. It was at Stomper's old rock spot in yeah. Itaewon, closed for many years, but they were there. And I, I just wandered in there one night and I thought, what is this? It's yes. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I bought their CD and never looked back. Yeah. Stomper's used to, um, it used to require security guards. Like there were times where you couldn't get in and when Boy. you were playing on stage, like they, they had to protect the stage. It used Boy. to be this... Uh, Really amazing place to go and see live music. Yeah. Do you know Dwayne, the guy that owned it? I, I do remember Dwayne. Uh, yeah. I've got some amazing stories about Dwayne. And I tell you one story about Dwayne while we're here, because I, I, I don't think I've told this story, but Dwayne is a, a good friend of mine. One of the best things that Dwayne ever did was when I was doing my masters, I believe, at the time, every time I would walk, he was at the Thunder Horse then, which was a different music venue. Um, he would ask me as soon as I walked in, How's your master's going? How's your dissertation? And he would just put that fear into yeah. me, reminded me I'm out playing music, I should be doing this. And so I was so thankful for him for that. Um, but Dwayne was so good for the local music scene here. Yeah. Um, I'd be sat at the end of the bar in Stompers with my good friend, Chad. We, we, we played music together in the Soul City Suicides and Dwayne would come up and he goes, man, you guys were great tonight. Put some, like, what a cash in our hand. And go, wow. there you go, guys, have some fun and here's some shots. And, and, and so we'd have a great time. And then about two hours later, we're still at the bar and we do, we're doing that. He would come up and he would get Chad's hand and go, you guys were great tonight and put some money. We say, Dwayne, you kind of already paid us, mate. And he's like, ah, go for it and more shots. The next day I would get a phone call about 11, 11 in the morning or something. And it, w- it would be Dwayne and he'd be like, uh, Dave. I'm like, yeah. He's like, did I pay you guys last night? I was like, yeah. And then you just hear, fuck. I was like, Dwayne, you paid us twice. Oh boy, <laughs> the 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 sacrifices that gentleman made to put live music uh, yeah. scene. You mentioned Kim Guang Sok, so I, I love the fact that we're bringing out these names that some people listening to this might not know, like the Rock Tigers, like Tao Rim, like Tang Ha, uh, Kim Guang Sok. You mentioned mm. who's so associated with democracy and movement. So there was this thing in the the eighties and nineties. It was blue jeans, tong guitar, acoustic guitar, and sing mekju. Uh, they were the symbols. Yeah. But when I listen to Kim Gong Suk's music, it's like, it's not Bob Dylan. No. He's not talking about revolution and masters of war. It's all just love songs, yeah. which I thought was always very interesting. Yeah, it's a very um, earthly pain, right? It, it, it's sort of uh, down to earth and, and we're, it, it, the music of, of the common people's lives, right? Yeah. Is there, we can move on, but just one on this. Is there something in... in I don't want to essentialize, but the sadness, the the melancholy, and I know Dr. Minsu Kang has had this whole like thing about Han and going against that. But you watch some of the movies, and they're emotional tearjerkers, and you listen to some of the music, and it's a bit like that. Is there something that resonates here? The Korean people like to have a sing, they like to have a cry, and then like, come on, and or is that just no, David? That happens everywhere. Is there is is there a um a ha- is there is is there a sadness is there a melancholy that permeates a lot of the the cultural products here as a as a as a cathartic way of release or something or barking up the wrong tree? I uh, I don't know. 
I, I've lived here so long now that I'm no longer looking at Korea objectively. So it's hard mm. to to make a, a one for one comparison with Korean cultural products and Australian cultural products. I haven't watched most Australian movies or listened to most Australian bands in the last twenty years. Yeah, no. um, yeah. No. Uh, and and. For obvious reasons, I'm reluctant to go down the path of Han because yes. that's a bit cliched. And uh, um, I also, I mean, generally, I, I tend to shy away from anything that smacks of cultural essentialism because, not because, not just because it's politically incorrect these days, but because mm. I've always been a person who uh, tries to look at the individual more than the group that they've come from. So mm. when people would would look at me and say, well, you know, Jacko doesn't do that because he's Australian. I said, no, no, there are Australians who, for example, will eat squid or do drink at Starbucks, but that's just not me, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, that's my own individual thing. So I try to sort of separate people out as individuals as much as possible. Mm. So, but you're right. That certainly in terms of the cultural products that I that I've you know, the, even the ones that the films that we've mentioned, yeah, that's, yeah. there's a lot of pain in there. There's a lot of hurt. Mm-hmm. And maybe to create literature, to create movies, you need a history. Uh, and it just reflects South Korea's history of the, the 20th century yeah. and beyond that they're, they're putting that. Um, <clears throat> can I ask you perhaps about the foreign community here? Because you mentioned Stephen Epstein. Yeah. Awesome who who doesn't live in Korea. Who, who but, doesn't live in Korea. He's an awesome dude. He One is an awesome dude. One of my top five favorite academics in the world. Yeah, and uh, for those that don't know, he is a, what would you call it? He's like a polyglot. Yeah. A man that speaks more. Polymath as well. A, 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 poly yeah, just a, just a poly. Just yeah, a, yeah just, a um, and so friendly and so positive about yeah. everything. I, I would suggest in my experiences with you, Jacko, that you've been um, very... A, a pillar of the foreign community here, and there are many foreign communities. Let's there be clear. Are. Exactly, so, because because yeah. I have no inroads with, for example, the Chinese community in Korea yeah, yeah, at yeah, all, yeah. Uh, which is much bigger than the community of uh, of white Western expats, of which I'm a part. Absolutely, well said. Uh, and I did try to put that in the questions uh, when I sent them over to you. But the community that we're a part of, you do seem to be a a a figure in that. And what I like about what you do is that you seem to take the time to remember the, those that have passed, those not longer with us. You seem to be in some way akin to an archive, not an archive in that sense, because that sounds a bit robotic and boring, but you will, and I've been with you, you will draw people's attention to people that are no longer with us, ask us to uh, perhaps raise our glass or commemorate them, or just to tell a story about how things were. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I, I'm just trying to acknowledge what I what I see you doing, and uh, I, I, I'm really, uh, it's touching. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, a lot of us, when we come here, uh, when you came in 2005 mm. and when I came back for the second triumphal return in 2004, <laughs> uh, actually it was uh, Valentine's Day 2004, so tomorrow will be the 19th anniversary of my second coming to Korea. Uh, that's by the by. When we came here, we did not intend to immigrate here and stick, stay here forever. Mm. At least I didn't uh, the first time around. Did you when you came here in 2005? I'm still not sure what I'm doing. No, right. I was just coming for a year to clear my head. And I say that as kind of a preamble that uh, a lot of us come here, um, we're transitory at the beginning, mm. and then some people end up staying and forming lives here. Mm. Uh, and so you've got a, a great example of that is um, people who come with the Peace Corps, came with the Peace Corps back in the 60s and 70s, some of those 
they're still here now. Yeah. So we have uh, the wonderful Hank Morris, who's still with us today. Hi, Hank, if you're watching. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we lost uh, the late, great Peter Bartholomew, who came, I want to say, 68 or so with the Peace Corps mm. um, for a year and then ended up living here, buying a house here, starting a business here and not... Yeah. I mean, he, he, he'd spent time outside Korea as well, and he had a holiday house in Vancouver or something. But mm. anyway, he was very much based here in Korea, and Korea was his, was his true love. Yeah. Um, and what, what happens when uh, people die like that is that they're so often forgotten because the, the, there's a lot of churn. People are constantly moving. They're here for – like diplomats are here for three years, and they move on. A lot of English teachers are here for a couple of years, and they move on. Mm. And so people are quickly forgotten um, – you know, and and I I try to remember those who have impacted my life in some way, mm. uh, and just kind of hold them hold them near and dear to us. Those who remember them. Uh, now, that said, what I do notice is a really really big change, and I, I probably should have put this very early on in our podcast discussions. Uh, mm. uh, one of the biggest developments that I have noticed in Korea since coming here nearly thirty years ago is that. Um, a lot of us white Western expats came here to Korea by accident. Mm. Uh, a lot of soldiers came here, American soldiers came here not wanting to. Some of them ended up staying. I met one gentleman. Uh, he was um, an African-American soldier who came here, and I think it was in 54, and I met him in 2004. Wow. And he, he came with the military. He tried going back to America, but it, it just didn't take – uh, and then he came back to Korea, and he was living in Paju, mm. close to an American military base that was about to close down for the last time. It was Camp Gary Owen. It was about to close down. It was about to be handed back to the Korean government. Uh, and he had, in the meantime, somewhere between 54 and when I met him, he had mm. divorced his American wife, said goodbye to his American kids, married a Korean woman who had then died in the 1990s of breast cancer. So he was all alone when I met him in 2004. Mm. And he would come on the base every day, uh, play the slot machines, and eat a meal, have a drink, and go home. And I don't know what happened to him after that. Goodness knows. Wow. He may not be alive. But what I mean is so a lot of people came by accident. I came yeah. for one year, David, to teach English in 1996, one year, and my plan was to go to Germany. One year became two, two became three. I married a Korean woman. We left for four years. Then we came back in 2004. And, and I knew when I came back in 2004, this is it. I'm immigrating. I, mm. I sold everything I had. I gave everything else away, and I, I came here for good. Now, what's the big change that, that, I've, that I've noticed? is uh, now when young people come to Korea, it's with a lot more, shall I say, intentionality. I don't even like that word, but mm. they come here because they want to be in Korea. Yeah. Right? The people are coming here because they want to learn Korean. They want to become a member of a K-pop band. They want to become a star in Korea, or they just want to work in Korea, or they've uh, fell in love with and married a Korean who was studying in their home country, and now they're here with that person. That is such a huge transformation yeah. because you're, getting, you're losing a lot of that... Um, a sense of people being here by accident, people who, and it's sadly true, but uh, um, a lot of those accidental people never bothered to learn Korean because they didn't intend to stay here or they didn't see them. They, they saw themselves as being in Korea, but not of Korea. Mm. Now, mm. when I came back in 2004, that was intentionally and, and uh, I immediately got long term, what do you call it, uh, permanent residence. Yeah. And I've had that ever since. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're seeing a lot of young people now who are coming here. They're excited by being in Korea. 
and and they want to live here, and that, that's great. That is a real transformation. Mm. And so there's, it's a bit like two lines on a graph. Those two things are passing because those people who came here accidentally, they don't die immediately all, all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're passing away slowly, mm. and they're being overtaken and eclipsed by uh, the people who want to be here uh, and, and who will do a much better job of, of integrating, uh, of being part of a of a bilingual Korean society. Mm. Uh, they'll do a whole lot of things that, that weren't done by the earlier generation. Yeah, yeah I think there's a, so much truth in what you say, that the young people that I meet that take an effort to learn the language from an early age as well and, and, and know so much about the, the... It might just be K-pop or it might be Webtoons or it might be beauty, but they have a long, deep knowledge about yeah. it. And it's that, like you say, that determination, that conscious decision yeah. to come here and be part of something, which just, I think, reflects how cool career is at the moment career how, how desirable yeah yeah uh, i mean back in the 90s there were some people who uh were paid hardship pay or um, um mm. something something of a similar word i forget danger money or something yeah, like something that. Exactly, yeah, I get, yeah exactly I get it, yeah. um for being you get a bit of extra money just for being in korea even though you didn't want to be yeah. and now people are like can i go to korea please send mm. me to korea mm. uh, and i think that's wonderful that's great for korea uh, and it's great for the people who come here. They get a lot more out of it that way. You feel uh, I won't stay on this topic long. You feel safe here. Yep. I, I, I yep. yeah. I have. Um, uh, I drink a lot less now than I used to, uh, but uh, there have been a couple of times when I have been um, very, very drunk out in the streets without fear that somebody was going to rob me, roll me, or get me into a bar fight, or I was mm. going to end up with a glass in my face. Mm. Uh, and, and sadly. Uh, I love Melbourne. I grew up in Melbourne, but there are, you know, there's a lot of places in the centre of the city now where they don't even serve glass after midnight because of the uh, the risk of people starting a fight with a broken glass. Mm. It's just silly. I don't know why yeah. that's become a thing, but I reg- I find it very sad. And um, I say that only to counterpose against how safe I feel in Korea. Yeah. Now, yeah. again, I am a six foot tall white man, uh, so I'm not an easy target. Mm. Uh, women often feel less safe than I do, uh, Korean women in particular. Uh, my wife has been in situations where she'll say, I don't want to go d- down this alley. I don't want to be in that neighborhood. I don't want to live in that area because I feel a bit unsafe. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I scoff and I say, why, why would you? You know, But that's, that's her lived experience. Mm. It's not mine. Mm. So, yeah, generally I feel very safe in Korea. You took um, me and my, my students on a walk down the Changgechan and yeah. we stopped at the statue of John Taeil. Yeah. And around that area is, it's not one, it, it's not sketchy, but like in the, the surrounding neighborhoods or if you just go like one street there, there's lots of rows of motorbikes yeah. and so many men standing outside smoking. It's yeah. very different from a, a Gangnam street or yep. something. You get what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it, it's just something that people won't easily see. And I, I kind of left my students there. I was like, wait, this is your challenge, right? You navigate your way mm. from this place. So there, there are some little pockets of Korea, but even there, it's, it's like you say, it's not like Melbourne. Uh, most reports coming out of the UK talk about increased cocaine use and openness. Yep. and causing violence and such things like that. It's very safe. Yeah. There was one time I was with my wife and a friend of ours. We were walking in a neighborhood in uh, Jongno Samga. It was a neighborhood where um, a lot of people in very low down the economic chain mm. are, uh, I ladder, are living in um, very, very small houses 
rooms, really shared rooms in a building uh, at where it gets so hot in the summertime and they have no air conditioning that a, a lot of them will just come and sit outside just to escape the heat. Yeah. Right? And and we're walking now. I wasn't filming or photographing, but we were walking through there and I was saying, you know, this is um, clearly not a well-to-do neighborhood. Uh, and there were some people out there in the streets and, and one man uh, was not happy with my presence uh, mm. and began to say some things. And another man said to me, I think it's best you move on, and so we did. You know, but yeah. that was the one time in in over twenty years here that I felt, oh, it could be mm. a bit sketchy here. Yeah. But you know, otherwise there are no no go zones. If if you uh, if you walk with purpose about you uh, and keep your wits about you, career is a safe place to be. Uh, agreed, and 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 because of our experience, uh, because of our identity, we may experience it differently from other people. You you've mentioned your wife a couple of times, who I've who I've only met a few times on normally on KBS trips. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the, the Korea Britain Society, not the not, Korea Broadcasting Service, <laughs> yeah, which which is very confusing. I, 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 can you tell me something about your wife? Like, what does she do? Or I, any uh, plans tomorrow for Valentine's Day? I, I don't know. Just to help me understand. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, my wife is a, an English teacher. We met when I was an English teacher here as part of the Epic program in 1996. Uh, we met in '97. Sorry. Uh, and uh, she started off as a uh, an elementary school or a primary school English teacher, but when we moved to Australia, she had to uh, to quit that. She couldn't take mm. a leave of absence. So when she came back in two thousand four, um, she went to work for herself. So uh, she runs a little business there where she teaches uh, English to children in the area where we used to live. Nice, nice. Yeah. I've got three questions left for you. I know you're looking, and I, I promise I'll get you out of here on time. You told me you have a story about why. You call ambassadors your excellency. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure if you're prepared to tell this, but yeah. my last guest was Mr. Philip Tanner, and I call him Philip, and you don't. No, I, it's I do. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just different. I, I do when he tells me to. <laughs> yes. Uh, in 2004, I was at the uh, the Dutch Embassy's uh, Queen's Day uh, event. Yeah. I'm all as well as being Australian. I'm also Dutch. The name uh, gives it away, the surname. Yeah, and I met the then uh, Polish ambassador to Korea, mm -hmm. uh, who was introduced to me by his first name, Tadeusz, I think it was. Uh, and he told me a, a, a funny story about a, a time when he went to North Korea. And then I, I met him a few weeks later at a reception that was held at the, I think the Hilton or the Hyatt Hotel, one of those hotels, mm. f uh, to congratulate um, a new batch of... Uh, Eastern and Central European countries joining the EU, and okay. Poland was one of them. Mm -hmm. um, it, it may have been eight to ten countries. A lot of them were joining all at once. And I went there, uh, and there was the Polish ambassador. And I called out to him in his first name, which mm. I'd been given at the Dutch embassy. Hey, Tadeusz, great to see you. And uh, he looked a bit uh, put out by that. And mm. I said, oh, I'm sorry, am I being too informal? And he said, yeah, yeah a little bit, because it was diff different circumstances. Yes, yeah. Very different circumstances. Yeah. So I've, uh, since then, uh, a, a little bit chastened. I've adopted the policy then. It's better to go too formal and then be told, call me Philip, yep. yeah, than yeah, to start yeah. too informal and then have you know somebody say, please call me Your Excellency. Mm. I never want to hear that line again. I'd rather have somebody say, call me Philip. Yeah, yeah. No, well said. Wow. Yeah. Please call me your excellency. No, wait, no. Okay. No, I, I should say, yeah, Tadeusz never said, said that to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> it was clear that I shouldn't have shouted out his first name in a, in a, uh, in a formal <laughs> occasion like that. Uh, I was far too folksy. 
Yes, that, yes, that, yeah. That, times and places. Yeah, times and places. Yeah. You don't necessarily at a, a soiree shout across right. the now, room. Right, now, if, yeah, if I met Ambassador Philip Turner at a, uh, at a bar, I'd say, hey, Phil, come over here, let's have a beer. You know? Yes. Yeah. But it, I, I met him at an Asia Society thing. It was a book launch. There were a lot of uh, important people there. So I will say, hello, Your Excellency. Yes, very good. Until he tells me otherwise. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, bringing this towards the, the, the closing section now, Jacko. Um, advi- advice for young people. You said you're approaching 50. Yeah. You're 50 this year. And you're wise. You're mature. You said you're not drinking as much these days. You've kept out of trouble. You, you, you start formally. 2023 is not 1996. But if there was a young Jacko or if there's young <clears throat> people... Uh, trying to navigate this life, what do you what do you think is important for them to know? What what advice would you give to an eighteen year old Jacko were he to be here in two thousand and twenty three or anywhere else in the world? Yeah, uh, learn Korean much harder and faster than you did back in nineteen ninety six. For God's sakes, I mean, I was I was doing it as a hobbyist. I, I had some books and some tapes, and I thought I was doing okay. Mm. But I've since been put to. Uh, uh, put to rights by people who have done a lot better than I have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, back then in '96, there weren't a lot of Tyler Rauschers out there, right? There was, uh, um, well, probably it was probably about '97 or '98 that I first saw uh, some foreigners speaking Korean on television. So that was um, Robert Holly and Ida Doshi, mm-hmm. uh, and then later on it was um, John, uh, uh, the doctor from Seven's Hospital, uh, Linton. Yeah, okay. uh, John Linton. Uh, so, and I, I saw them speaking Korean, and, and that really inspired me. And, and I thought, oh, I, I should do a bit harder. But to be honest, because I, it's hard when you come as you and I did teach, to teach English. Mm. People are paying you money and want to have a piece of your time to learn your language. There's very little incentive on you mm. to go and learn the Korean language. Now, people who come and and uh, work, for example, in factories, they learn Korean really because they have to. Yes. Right. I mean, I've met some uh, Nepalese people here, for example, who speak brilliant Korean mm. because they have to to run their businesses. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so um, th- that's the uh, the two edged sword of being an English speaker from a Western country is that people want to speak English with you. Yeah. Uh, and I should have tried that a lot harder um, when I was uh, 23 when I came here. Um, I regret that I didn't, you know, because your, your brain does lose a bit of its edge. Yeah. You know, I'm doing okay with Korean now. You but, are. Yeah. Uh, but I could have been better. Mm. Uh, and and uh, every Mormon missionary I meet uh, convinces me <laughs> that I probably should have been better, uh, you know, had, had I started a little bit younger, a little bit more uh, intensely. So that would be my advice. And, in fact, I'm giving a talk, uh, f- same talk four times, mm. next week to the brand new batch of EPIC teachers who are coming in. Right? I came in with the EPIC program in 96, mm. and next week I'll be talking to new EPIC teachers. Um, what is EPIC? Oh, uh, right, yes. Yeah. So the it's uninitiated. the English program in Korea, so mm-hmm. EPIC with a K, mm. which is a program modeled after the JET program in Japan, Japan and English teachers or something. Uh, when I came in 96, it was still under its initial name, which was Coretta, the Korean English teacher training assistant, Coretta. Mm-hmm. And I changed that the year after to the shorter epic and snappier epic. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I came with them. Uh, and this is my chance to go and talk to the, the new uh, epic p- people coming in. And at least three times in my presentation, learn Korean. It's in there. Mm. I repeat it for emphasis because I say that the the more you learn, uh, more Korean you learn, the, 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 the you know, you it's an investment. It will reap. Reward. You'll reap rewards later on. Yeah. And I've met, sadly, I've met people 
you know, even once I, I worked with an English teacher, this is not part of the EPIC program, but at a university, who was, uh, he lived in Korea for three years or more. He'd married a Korean woman, and he said to me, point blank, learning Korean was a waste of time to him because he wasn't going to stay in Korea forever, and when he went back to his home country, what good would it be of him uh, to him? And I, I didn't I've have heard the, that before as well, yeah. Uh, and it, it, it frustrated me to hear that, but I didn't have the presence of mind to say to him, uh, you've married a woman who will, for the rest of her life, be dealing in a second language, mm. uh, and you don't show even... Uh, why aren't you even a little bit interested in understanding where she's from? Uh, and if you know, if you have an extra language, that's always an asset. Yes. Right. Even back in, yes. in this case, Canada, but in, in any other country, there will always. If you have that skill, you can always make that a turn it into a marketable asset. Uh, and and so you know, um, I'm sad for those people who don't see that. Mm. But anyway, that, that's my advice to anyone who comes here to Korea for the first time. Luckily, these days, a lot of as I said, a lot of people are coming intentionally, so a lot of them have already started learning Korean. Good for you if you have, yeah. and if you haven't. It's not too late to start learning. Crack on with, you know, get onto it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I started late. And for those that don't know, uh, Jacko's Korean is very good. <laughs> Just to be clear, because some people might get it twisted, they might not understand. But you you do speak and you do write Korean. But it, like me, you know it could always be better. And we could always do more. Yeah. completely agree. You remember those uh, students that I introduced you to on that tour a yeah. few days ago? When we were all saying our goodbyes, uh, and I asked all the students one by one to come up to the front, sit on the chair, and you know, just just say something because we've spent so much time together. One of the the young gentlemen, Korea, uh, sorry, American Vietnamese, uh, young man called Eric, he said during his part, and it struck me. He said, and I, I he said, I really want to make sure to recognize and applaud everybody that did this class in a second language. He said, I'm so proud of it because there's students there from China, from Hong Kong, from right. Taiwan, from yeah. Japan. And we sometimes forget, you know, that they're doing all of these things in a second, maybe even a third language sometimes. And uh, yeah, it's it's an amazing feat. And I, I'm forever humbled by how good these people are. And it drives me to get better. Yeah. Drives yeah. me to get better. Um, Jacko, I, this is how I do my yongyols and I, I connect the episodes. So... A question, please, for the next guest about Korea. Yeah, this is that thing I should have prepared before <coughs> coming here, right? It can, uh, be, it can be deep, it can be shallow, it can be anything. You don't know who the guest will be, but it's to try to make that guest ask, answer something out of their wheelhouse, I guess. I'm just talking so you can think a yeah. little bit more. No, I've, I've got something. It's kind of a half-baked idea, but let's, let's see where it leads us. Um, so... When I came in '96, Korea was was striving, mm. uh, and uh, it you know six out of ten Koreans, if not more, would have said then you know we are a developing nation, uh, and and we, we're striving to get to you know we've just joined the OECD mm. and we want to be uh, in the top ranks, and and now oh and and at that time the the GDP per capita was uh, somewhere between thirteen. And sixteen, that's one three and one six thousand dollars per person in ninety six. Here we are now, less than thirty years later, the GDP that's per capita is thirty five thousand. Right. So it's uh, more than doubled. Uh, um and and Korea's having its its moment in the sun, right? I mean Netflix, the Academy Awards, did they do anything at the Grammy? Not sure. Anyway, uh, BTS at the White House. Yeah. The point is Korea's having its moment in the sun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh 
it's always hard to sustain something like that. You know, America has had, admittedly, America has had a, a cultural hegemony over the, the pop culture world for about 100 years now. Mm. Um, but other fads come and go. Back in the 90s when I came here, J-pop was a thing and, and yeah. Japanese anime yeah. uh, and Jap you know, beat Takeshi movies um, were things. Uh, so it, it's hard. Can Korea last forever? Mm. It, it, no, no, that's that's a, that's a stupid question because the answer, of course, nothing lasts forever. Um, can Korea maintain its cultural prowess for the next decade is really the question. And if not, which country do you see as being uh, ne the next Korea? Who, mm. Who's the next rising star? Is it going to be Turkey? Is it going to be Iran? Is it going to be the Philippines? What's it going to be? That's a very good pronunciation of Turkey. I was called up on that on the, my World News segment the other day. I was like, David, they've changed the pronunciation. Yes, okay. I forgot. <laughs> so it's more about <clears throat> the cultural but you, you're specifically asking about the culture. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not focusing on the because every nation rises <laughs> economically, but yeah, yeah. culturally speaking, Korea is at a moment now. Yeah. Uh, can it hold on for another decade until 2033 when I hit 60? Yeah. God. Is it is it a fad? Is it a trend? Is it uh, yeah. yeah? How embedded is it? That's yeah. that's a very interesting question. The the question I have for you from the previous guest is <clears throat> a little bit similar. Excuse me. <clears throat> the question from. Uh, His Excellency, Mr. Philip Turner. Hello, Your Excellency, if you've made it through this far. <laughs> After South Korea's three revolutions, political, cultural, and economic, what happens next? How can South Korea top what it's already achieved? So it's very similar, um, perhaps, to the question, but where is yours focused on culture? Mr. Turner was talking about it's done these big three revolutions. What comes next? Where does Korea, what's the next step? That's the question for you, Jacko, to close us out. Well, I mean, we, we have to... Uh, I mean, the immediate answer that comes to mind is that South Korea yes. is one half of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and, you know, um, I know we talk about it less and less now in Korean society, but it's still that task that remains to South Korea is to somehow unify itself with North Korea. Um, how and and... In what form will that take place? That's anybody's guess. Mm. But it will be a really big challenge to Korea. Uh, it, it could start off its own revolution in a way. But it, it, when it happens to, and I, I don't mean it'll be a challenge just to South Korea, because you know, it'll be a challenge to all Koreans. Mm. Uh, and it'll be messy. And there'll be some pain involved. Mm. And there'll be winners and losers. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I hope I'm here to see some of that. Um, you're speaking in very definite terms, like when it happens, the language. Yeah, you, so you, well, you're quite confident that... Let, let, let's look at it this way. Uh, mm. Think about other countries where there's a very, very strong cleavage, big cleavage between rich and poor. Think about Brazil and South Africa. Mm. Uh, the poor people, what they and, and think about what happened in, in Great Britain during the Industrial Revolution. The poor people in the rural areas, mm. uh, when they see opportunity in the cities, are drawn to the cities like magnets. Yeah. Right? That magnets have that power. And that's why we have these shanty towns outside Cape Town in South Africa and outside Rio de Janeiro mm. uh, and São Paulo in, in Brazil. The favelas. That's why they exist. Mm. Uh, and we see that repeatedly in lots of countries. This is not something specific to those two countries that I've mentioned. So to the, anyone listening from those countries, I'm, I'm not singling you out. I'm saying that human nature is uh, you want 
to improve your life and you want your kids to live a better life than yeah. you did. And so you go and seek out those opportunities. Now, yeah. at the moment, uh, you have North Korea where there's not a lot of economic opportunity and in South Korea where there is a lot of perceived economic opportunity. Uh, when the people in North Korea are able to move, a lot of them, particularly those who can, and I mean single, healthy, young men, mm -hmm who no longer have anything to do in the North Korean army when the army is disbanded, will find themselves moving, voting with their feet to South Korea to look for jobs here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will be a form of unification before there's a national ceremony and the two presidents shake hands or, or whatever, you know, some yeah. flag is raised over um, a new government building. That's all uh, ceremonial stuff. Before the ceremonial stuff, the real unification will be when Korean people move to be with other Korean people who they see as being better off mm. uh, and trying to share in some of that, that wealth. Yeah. Right? Just like we saw, I think, in East Germany when that uh, border went down, um, that people start moving with their feet saying, well, uh, you know, this factory's closed down. I'm going to go there. Mm. And so I, I think a form of unification when things change in North Korea is inevitable. Will it be done with permits or will it be done with people crossing the border illegally? That's that's up to you know history to, to show us how that happens. Mm. Uh, but it will happen. I do believe that quite firmly. And so that's why I said it with a definiteness. Yeah. But, yeah. but that doesn't mean that I know what the unified North Korean state is going to look like or who the next president of North Korea, the next leader of a unified Korea is going to be. Mm. But it means that when people can, they will come and seek out opportunities. And you believe that when, for example, you gave the example of those young North Korean men, healthy, with feet, with the ability to move, no longer in the uh, North Korean army, that they might come here, and that will pose some problems. That will be the reality of uh, a unified Korea, because the Koreans will be next to each other then. But then that will not be easy. There will be some teething problems that come with that beyond the ceremonies. Yeah. And, yeah. But now it, it depends, of course, on, on when it happens. I don't know if you saw there's a graph that's uh, currently uh, doing the rounds on Twitter now that suggests that the South Korean population, 97% of the South Korean some uh, maybe that number's overdoing it, maybe it was 87% of the South Korean population, will be aged over 65 by 2070, maybe? Okay, yeah, I, I can believe it with the, the, the fertility yeah. rates. And right, and and and, uh, and people marrying later or not marrying and having fewer children, yep. guilty as charged, Your Honor. Uh, that 2070, there will be a lot of empty apartments in Seoul, so maybe it'll be okay by then, you know? Mm -hmm. so, but. But you can't say to North Korean people, stick around till 2070. We'll have a lot of empty apartments by then. You know, people will come when they can come. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, will they come tomorrow uh, in an unplanned way, or will they come in 2070 in an unplanned way, or sometime in between? So, you know, uh, a lot of that uh, that messiness will depend on on how and when it happens. Mm. I, I I know I do hear from some people that, well, you know. If the uh, if unification happens in a way that uh, the South Korean government is in a position to to let or not let North Koreans cross the demilitarized zone, the South Korean government will just not let them. It'll just make them stay there and say, you know, you you stay there and work the land and build up factories and businesses, and mm. we'll have a, a slow reunion, you know, o over uh, decades. And that's a, uh, an idea that I can understand where that idea comes from, mm. but. It's very hard to imagine a realistic scenario in which any government says to a bunch of people, 
look, we're not ready for you now, um, and maybe we won't be ready for your kids, but you know, in 50 years' time, your grandkids will be able to live down here with us. Mm. It's very hard to say mm. to, for that message to be received well by the, by the hearers, right? Yeah, understood. Is there no possibility, maybe I shouldn't, is there no possibility that <clears throat> North Korea becomes closer to China and becomes part of that empire? Yeah, that, and that's something that I uh, used to really see happening back in the uh, in the early to mid two thousands. You know, um, that that seemed likely. Um, I know that that's not what the North Korean people want either, uh, and th- and that's interesting because that's probably something that's true not just for the, the the elites of North Korea, but also the people at the bottom of mm. the, the system in North Korea. Uh, there's not a lot of love among the people of North Korea um, f- for China. Uh, and so they don't want to be part of that either. Uh, so it's not impossible, right. but it's, it's, not, it's not the outcome that the North Koreans would desire, and it's certainly not the outcome that the South Koreans would desire. Right? The South Koreans would not like to see North Korea become a, uh, uh, either a puppet state or a, uh, a new province in the People's Republic of China. Yeah. I, I, it's hard to imagine that. But, uh, but again, it could happen. I don't want to exclude that possibility. History can be very uh, a very harsh teacher to people who say this is impossible, that's impossible. Mm. You know, perhaps one of my favorite things about you, Jack, and I'm not sure if I've learned this subconsciously or um, certainly people like Mr. Hank Morris, you've mentioned, he, he would do similar things with me, is that you like to, and I think this is a positive thing, you like to observe. You like to watch things unfold. You're not prescriptive. You're not uh, requesting, suggesting, demanding things uh, take place in a certain way that you think would be appropriate or that you think is best. But rather, you're happy to watch, to observe, uh, to be part of the journey. Of course, you have maybe your wishes and your desires. But what I like about you is that you're, you're an observer. And, and, and you watch the story unfold and, and you see it as it is. And I think that's an amazing quality because it's very easy to um, prescribe and, and demand and advocate. But yeah, you... but sometimes I do that too. I can get very stroppy. You know, yesterday, she, <laughs> my wife and I were watching Dong uh, uh, Wulongjang, Animal Farm on SBS. Is that still on? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. And there was a, uh, a very sad uh, story about uh, a man who owns a wildlife cafe in Hongdae. Okay. Somewhere not far from here where you can go in and touch meerkats and lizards and also dogs and cats and a goat and other animals. There's some well. with sheep and goats and yeah. things like that, yeah. And and <coughs> they should not be living in that building. But never that that's beside the point. He was not treating them well, so mm. you had him um you know, some CCTV footage of him chasing them around with a hammer oh, when, he, when he got angry. Uh and and then the electricity failing, and and so the meerkats were freezing to death because they weren't getting enough heat. And you know they're desert mm-hmm. animals, mm-hmm. and and this is winter in Korea, and the temperature was down to sixteen degrees. So uh, the uh, the Mapo Gu office went in there, mm. and they said, well, um, because of the way the law is written, uh, cats and dogs are pet animals. They're classified as pets, so we can, if they're not being treated well, we can take them from you. Right. And we will. Right. Uh, these other animals, the meerkats and the, the wild animals, they are not protected by the uh, the, the law against cruelty to pet animals because they're not classified as pets. So right now we have to leave them with you. Oh, wow. So it's like tongmul chabyol. It's like animal Correct. discrimination yeah. or something. Yeah, speciesism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so speciesism. I, of course, immediately got very upset and said, well, they need to change that silly law. You yeah. know, they need to make those animals also be protected so that they too can be removed from people who, who uh, you know, 
shouldn't have them. Anyway, but so I don't only observe. Sometimes yeah. I get emotional and caught up in things as well. Um, you know, and especially when animals are involved. You're a cat man, aren't you? I'm a cat man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that program was still on because it, it was there when I first came. That and uh, it was, uh, what was it called? Shootery. They, they had a shootery. It was like a little football game. Oh. They would have all these young boys running around on a football team or something. And they, they were about six or seven, but they were a football team. Ah, and that I, was the I joke. That one. How many children are you going to have? Are we going to have a shootery team? We're ah. going to have sort of five or six like this. But it's good to know Tongmul Nongjang is still going. More than a thousand episodes. Every Sunday, 9.30 till 11, going strong. Oh, is that right? And, uh, and what, what, uh, oh, that is another big change, really big transformation that's occurred, is that... Uh, People are um, uh, there's a lot more pet ownership in Korea now, and mm. people are a lot more uh, concerned about cruelty to animals and and treating animals right. And so there are now animal shelters. Uh, our friend, uh, retired Lieutenant General John Inbom, spent mm. all of yesterday at a cat shelter in Paju, and he that. shared a photograph. Of that. Good for you. Now, when I lived in Paju in it was a very cute. Photograph. I don't think there was uh, a cat shelter up there. Mm. You know. Uh, so, there was, you know, and, and gosh, even then, to have a pet cat was seen as being a strange thing. Cats were uh, the devil's animals. Cats, you know, mm. they, they can see at nighttime and they're, they're uh, stealing the spirits of the dead. Or it, There was all sorts of stories told about cats. And mm. so um, that's, uh, that's changed. And for dogs, dog lovers, the consumption of dog meat is really on the way down in Korea, right? I mean, yeah. dog farms are closing every year. So that, that's been a, a great thing, an encouraging thing, because I remember – uh, you know, you, you'd see back in Australia, there'd be somebody with a petition saying, tell Koreans to stop eating dog meat. And I, I, I get that. I mean, it's going on at the moment with some American tour. Oh, There's really? a big story in the news the last couple of days. Oh. Some American people have cancelled a tour based on Koreans' consumption of dog meat. Ah. Now, while I understand and, and, I, and I support uh, people who don't want to see dogs and cats being eaten or, or, or beaten or, or mistreated, mm. um, the best way for that movement to happen is for it to be done by Koreans yeah. rather than by Americans or a lonely Australian telling them, oi, you know, stop eating dogs and cats, mm. you know. Uh, and and now it is being done by Koreans. It right? is. So now you'll see out there in Myeongdong uh, a woman with, with signs about uh, cats and dogs being eaten and in Kwanghwan. You know, mm. and, and these are Koreans doing yeah. it, yeah. Uh, not foreigners. So, you know, I, I guess that's, that's – a sort of a principle of self-determination that I guess I hold to that, you know, Korean unification ultimately also will be something that will be sorted out by Koreans mm. uh, and foreigners mm. may be welcome to help or may not be. Uh, but it certainly should not be driven by the outside world uh, to to push North or South Korea to do A or B. You know, yeah. it would be Koreans for themselves working out how their future should be. So I, I guess that's, that, that's probably a, a, a position that I hold to more than observing something is that that yeah self-determination yeah which I, I i respect more because it takes a humility to have been here so long and to still stick to that having been here so long having learned so much it would be very easy then to to want to to use that can you tell me something about paju you've mentioned you've said the word paju yeah. ab about 50 times today and i ask because i don't think i've ever been it's also I, a great I, I, film. I, I, I recommend that. I think you can find it on Netflix, maybe. The uh, film is Paju. There was a film called Paju, and I think it's made, if I, I hope I don't mangle the name, I think it, the director is Pak chan Ok, not Pak chan Ok, okay. but a woman director, Pak chan Ok, who also made, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the 2001 film Jiltun and Nae Him, or Jealousy is My Middle Name, which is also great film. But anyway, Paju, 
Um, is it famous for anything? Like if you think Chuncheon Takalbi or does Paju have a a place in the Korean consciousness that immediately brings it to mind? Or Paju is just... Not one that comes Paju. to me, apart from, of course, being um, that, that county or that city in which uh, Panmunjom sits and the demilitarized zone. I mean, that's all part of Paju. Uh, Paju... Um, they still have a bit of agriculture out there, but now you've also got like when when Philips and LG had a joint venture to make uh, digital display screens, mm. they made that factory out there in Paju. So there's, but Paju now has, and it wasn't mm. there when I was there, mm. this uh, this book village there, uh, this sort of publishing village. That sounds nice. Uh, Heiri, I think it's called, mm. uh, and so there's a lot of things to see out there as well as. Um, uh, discount, uh, what do they call them? Outlets. Outlet, oh, they love the factory outlet. outlets there. Yeah, so I, I do have a, a fondness for Pudge. I spent uh, a year there and I, I still have friends there. So it's a, it's a wonderful place. I, I, I think I need to at least go there once. Um, uh, was, it, was it our mutual friend, Mr. Tharp, uh, Tharp, another retired army man that said, yeah. Panmunjom wasn't the original name uh, of the place. There was a Korean name and so they needed Hanja. Yeah, I you know I forget. Um, it was like a small hill or something. I was trying to find it there. It was like Norimal or something like this. That's a, incorrect, but that was a story, wasn't it? I didn't make that up. That, yeah, you know, you're, you're, uh, so um, Panmun. Now let me channel my inner Steve Tharp here. Panmunjom was not the name of a village because you know Ri is the name of a village. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Panmunjom <laughs> was the name of a uh, of a uh, a, a liquor. Not a liquor store, an ale house, a place where people would drink, mm. uh, and it did have a a name in Korean, and I'd have to Google it again to find out because it was in pure Korean, which couldn't be written in Hunter, and because you had in the Korean War Chinese and Korean troops, yeah, it had to be something that was written uh, in Chinese characters and could also be pronounced by the Westerners. So they ended up going for Panmunjom rather than whatever the name of that village was uh, or that that uh, drinking house that used to be there. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one of those little known facts of history, uh, forgotten by most, but remembered by people like Steve Tharp. It's, uh, if you haven't yet been to Panmunjom, everyone should go there. That's yeah. a fascinating trip. Or listen to some, I, I'm going up on um, April 1st with my brother-in-law, uh, the Lieutenant Colonel, he's gonna take me up on a trip. And Fantastic. See, see some stuff and take some photos and maybe in the future as well I'm going to have another mutual friend of ours Steve Kapener on here ah. to talk about his father and, and some things like that Jacko um, I know time is upon us thank you so much for this thanks for having me on the podcast David Kivach <laughs>